Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces. Welcome back. I am your jolly green giant, your jack of all glades, and I'm joined once again by Emily of the Erie for some more questions. Emily, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Very sunny here in Michigan. Good. That's what I was about to ask. We've probably had our summer. It rained today, so that was probably it. But the last week we've been scorching, so I'm glad to hear it's the same for you. You've been collecting solar energy as well. Oh, yeah. Good. We'll put it to good use today. So welcome back, everybody. This is part three of our 100 questions of the winds of winter. We're streaming through. We have another 10 for you today. So that is questions 20, 21 to 30, rather. We've got some good ones. I'm looking forward to it. I suppose this time I can't enchant you of my NBA playoffs talk. Emily will restrain me this time. <laughs> I have to save that for scraps and scrolls, I suppose. But I'll get there one day. Right. Yeah. Uh, speaking of scraps and scrolls, you've been busy. Um, Theon has just come out. Victarion mm-hmm. should be pretty much right behind this. And then I hear talk, maybe you're considering a roundup. So I'm crossing my fingers for that. I'd love to hear that. Well, because Victarion is so short, so tiny, only six pages. Uh, yeah, we'll probably put out something extra. I might mix them together. They might come out after. But I don't want to completely forget about our Johns and Briennes and whoever else we haven't been able to cover in all these preview chapters. So it would be a nice way to put a bow on it and well, be the end of Scraps and Scrolls for now, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll hope, you know, there's uh, there's uh, Scraps and Screens coming up, which I'm looking forward to. So. Precisely. There's always more Scraps to be found. And <laughs> um, before we have that, we will be delivering our much promised Patreon exclusive which is your interview Emily so we can get to know you a little bit better which we did do on Sporkle Spectacular but I'm sure there's more to find out yet oh yeah I know I don't want to keep the suspense too long so I'm looking forward to getting that out to to our patrons so plenty going on you've got more questions still another 70 odd to go plus Patreon exclusives plus scraps and scrolls is always going on there so it's a good job it's sunny here to keep us going Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of our patrons, I'm going to walk us through our jade branches, green trunks, emerald branches. All right. So uh, we've got we've had some uh, some new patrons join. So I think why don't we go back and forth today? Yeah, we've got a big long list. It's too big just for one person to handle anymore. So I would appreciate the help. Normally I have to strain my voice doing it. So we've had so many join up and be so generous lately. Yeah, we really can't thank you enough. So um, yeah, here they are. We would like to thank Catherine VP. Eric F. Gardener Queen. Lomas Knight Rider, survivor of the Yeen Sleepover. Grizzly M. Devora L. Glenn T. Aegon the Sick. Brandy T. Lord Commander Namian Darklin. KM. Crystal F. Virginia D. I am so sorry yet again if I mispronounce your name every time. <laughs> and of course, Archmaester June, healer of the Lesser Poxes. And you bring up a good point. If, if we're mispronouncing anything, please let us know. Yeah, do get in touch. I'm sure I am. I normally mispronounce most things, and that's the ones I know how to pronounce. So (laughs) it's almost fair. But thank you, one and all, so much, and all patrons, and for everyone else, of course, who's listening in and been sending such good feedback for these episodes and scraps and scrolls and everything else. It is, like I say every week, very, very much appreciated. And Emily, I always thank them on your behalf as well, because I know you feel the same. Absolutely. Yeah, I try to be in the comments as much as I can. But yeah, we, we, I'm just so grateful. So thank you all. And I know you've been getting good interaction on Twitter people talking to you about again these episodes and other things as well yeah. to do with the other faces yeah absolutely we'll remind you of all that info in just a moment here so 100 questions on the winds of winter would you like to remind us of a few of these specifics yeah I'm sure everyone's got the groove of how this works by now but just in case you don't we're only three episodes in after all this is 100 questions total about anything and everything the winds of winter and I mean 
The other five books do slip in there as well, to be fair. So if you've already caught previous episodes in this series, you'll know we are doing 10 per episode at the moment. Maybe we'll do more in the future. We might do less. We'll see how it goes. And we'll be doing deep dives into theories. We'll be looking at specific storylines or answering about specific characters or some of just a more general take. And sometimes we even get to pick our own things of what we're looking forward to or coming up with our own ideas. And you've been doing the same as well. Absolutely. Now, um, we would love as many as possible of these questions to come from you listeners. You know, um, of course, some of our own questions have slipped in a few times, but, um, you know, our list is is near 100, but we do have some some repeats that we've got to prune. So please keep them coming. Uh, if you can think of anything that you want us to answer uh, or would like a shout out on the show, you can email us at Isle of Faces podcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet at at Sir Buckley or at Emily of the Erie. Or, uh, you know, if you're a patron, please send us a message there as well. Heck, if you've got a raven, send that. And like we said a minute ago, not only do you want to hear your questions, but the thing I get really excited about is hearing your answers as we go through uh, these many, many questions. And that can be one right from the beginning if you're catching up, or it can be from the most recent. We don't mind. You can always send them in. Do you agree with what we said? Or have you got a completely different idea? Are we out of our minds? Are we completely wrong? You can tell us either way. And Emily, I believe we've had some responses if you'd like to share some of those of us. Oh, yeah, we've gotten a lot of responses. So we'll zip mm. through these. Back in our first episode, episode question three patron grizzly m sent regarding mira who the question was about uh their mm-hmm. headcanon is that mira builds and navigates a cranogman style boat akin to howland and the isle through the caverns via gorm's way with hodor summer and bran who may or may not be warged into hodor <laughs> while remaining in the weirwood oh, i love that one that's a really nice probably too nice image i don't think they'll get away with such a, <laughs> a lovely jaunt down the river but it's i really like that idea that's pretty cool I- I think, you know, I think we could, if we see it, it's probably just leading to something horrible, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that Hodor moment, right? I've got like a Huckleberry Finn type image in my mind and just <laughs> drifting, drifting down a little raft, but probably not. But it's a good image. Mm-hmm, I love that. And also from Patron Grizzly, um, uh, from the same episode, question eight, we were talking about potential chapter titles for those that don't have them. And Grizzly M sent in one for John and it was simply The Werewolf, which again, brilliant answer i like that that was a, a really good oh, one yeah we get it as someone who makes up a lot oh, of yeah, their we're... own hybrid words um i love that so <laughs> thank you grizzly m for that going into our second episode from question 12 we actually got several responses here um so if you don't remember that's okay this question was about you know what do we think the fan favorites will be so i've got to go with my one of my personal favorite submissions so uh virginia and glenn both agreed on this one miranda royce i just have to throw my support behind that as well and thank you so much for (laughs) welcoming me to the randa fan club (laughs) that's a big fan club i think i think it'll be even bigger probably by the ends of when Okay, yes, technically she's not new, new. We do meet her and dance, but I think she's new enough to count. I think <laughs> she'll be much more, much more featured in wins. So that's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Now, one who's not quite <laughs> as new as Miranda comes from our friend the Hedge Knight, who says Aya. And okay, yes, we'll be a fan favorite. Not quite a new character, but we'll still be a fan favorite in wins even with the much much darker storyline i'm sure we're going to get from her but we have to include it because we love aya and we love the hedge knight as well so it has to be included exactly. your answers don't have to be serious when you send them in we'll still <laughs> you know or I, I know that's very serious from the hedge knight i should say but you know they can be a little tongue-in-cheek as well um and then uh this one from low i they said alaris um 
They said, this feels like a fun and intriguing character, and they think that Alaris will delight readers with wit and mystery. So great choice there, Lo. Yeah, that's a character that Lo's given us a lot of good insights on as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward. And we will actually have that specific question in a later episode, what Alaris slash Sorella will be getting up to and how that's all going to go down. So we look forward to getting to that one in the future. Now, another one from The Hedge Knight, uh, still from episode two. This was question 14, which was about Lady Stoneheart's demise and Aya's path back to Westeros. All right, so bear with us for a minute because we've got a theory here, but I love it. Um, So the Hedge Knight tells us that he is firmly convinced that Arya will return to Westeros after seeing Lady Stoneheart via her wolf dreams. However, the Lady Stoneheart that she finds, which is the one that she actually rescued via Nymeria, is not Catelyn Stark, her mother. I just want to point out that Chloe over at Girls Gone Canon is, the Hedge Knight puts it, is the mom or the mother of this theory. So thank you, Chloe. Mm -hmm. You know, so in fitting with the bittersweet stories that George likes to tell, ultimately the hedge knight thinks that it will be Arya who brings her her demise um mm-hmm. she's come a long way in understanding the gift of mercy after you know she didn't grant it to sandor she's reflected on that realized that what lady stoneheart has become is no mercy for catelyn you know we've got mother merciless here as i think we mentioned and that uh he thinks she'll be the ultimately the one to kill her yeah this is good timing this links in with at least two of our questions that are coming today maybe more actually but the hedge knight for now asks will Will Aya kill Catelyn slash Lady Stoneheart using needle? Now, he thinks yes, and that that will break or severely damage Aya, causing her to put away her sword, so to speak, as she heads for home alone. And this actually starts to dip into our 15th question as well, about Valerian steel swords that we might see in winds, because her journey could and probably will lead her through Greywater, uh, Greywater Watch if she's going to the north, where she could meet Howland and maybe Ishara, and ultimately Mira, if she's been able to get south, like our original question back in episode one, uh, where she could take Dark Sister home to reunite with her family, and join with the others, and yeah, a big long answer from the Hedge Knight, but a great one. I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah, absolutely. And and like you said, this does lead into question 15, we, which we actually got a, a couple more answers on. So as the Hedge Knight shared uh, there, he thinks that we, he might see Arya wielding Dark Sister, which I think we're all, mm-hmm. you know, hoping maybe we'll, we will see uh, in winds or onward from there. Uh, listener Micah also chimed in on this one saying that he thinks that we may see some Stormlands swords, maybe a Dondarian Valyrian sword or one that belonged to House Durandon as possible as well so thank you for that Micah that'd be cool yeah that'd definitely be cool the Stormlands is in a resurgence uh, we discussed that a lot and it's going to come back onto the main stage so that'd be cool to see all of the Storm Lords come with them and everyone dusting off their ancestral swords for the the big fights ahead that's great also from Micah uh, this time from question 17 this was about our veil question and about Sweet Robin and Harold Harding's fates in winds and Micah says he thinks that Harold Harding will die in the tourney. Well, that would be a bit of a stumble in the roadblock, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think, you know, we, we definitely discussed that. And so thank you, Micah, for, for throwing your support behind that potential outcome. That does it for now on, on questions that we've gotten answers to. So as you're listening to the upcoming episode, we're about to get going with question 21. Please, you know, jot down your answers, tweet them at us. We, we really want to know what you think. And if you feel comfortable, we'd be happy to feature you in the next episode. Yeah, that's great. I really enjoyed being able to do that. Now I hope we can do that in further episodes. We'd love to hear your answers. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, well then... Ready to lead us in? I think we should probably get going. Yeah. yeah let's start off our first question of the day. This is question 21 in total, if you're uh, <laughs> scratching it into your wall, as you should be listening on to this. We have, are there any guesses for the setting and POV of the prologue chapter? And this comes actually from multiple people. Emily, you are one of them. That's true. Willard the Slumbry, one of our patrons, is another. And I think several other people as well. Now, I think people have likely heard me go on about this way too often before this is one of my favorites so i'm definitely interested to hear your takes emily and you might have to restrain me because i could spend the whole episode on this one question but i'll try my best to not take up all our time yeah we maybe we should warn our listeners this is probably going to end up being our longest to date and this question certainly (laughs) is part of that definitely i don't think there's any question right so just as a little kind of recap of what we do know um, at the san diego comic-con in 2014 george let us know that we would be seeing jane westerling in the prologue for wins he later claimed that we would be seeing her, but he was not confirming that she was the POV character. Now, I personally think this is a relief because I really don't (laughs) want to see Jane die. Um, We basically know that's a guarantee when it comes to prologue and epilogue POV characters. So crossing my fingers, it is not Jane. Yeah, I remember you saying on one of the earlier episodes, you're a real Westerling fan. So this could be an interesting question for you. So with that knowledge that Jane will appear in, in some fashion, we can lay out for you here the likely scene that we're expecting to see in the prologue, at least in some form. Now, as you'll find out in a minute, there's loads of different details and variables that we can go through, but we can guess that the main bulk, the main focus of it will be, well, we think we've got our minds around it. And I was lucky enough to go on Radio Westeros' live stream about this subject last summer and, and talk about it. So again, you might have heard some of this already for me i try not to repeat myself too much but it is one of my favorite subjects about wins and we are going to take a, a bit of a deep dive on this one so as you might remember near the end of the feast for crows jamie came into the riverlands and he sorted out the river run mess and got the castle into the hands of the phrase finally following the red wedding deal the blackfish and his garrison they were all ousted the phrase went into their new home and Jamie took custody of Edmure Tully, Jane Westerling and several other key captives. Now rather than leave them in the hands of the phrase because no one trusts the phrase, hmm? Jamie sent them on a long procession back to Cassidy Rock for safekeeping. He had to go off to Raventree Hall and finally ends the time of the young wolf and the last holdout of that. So instead Jamie gave command of this procession to Forley Prester who's going to take 400 men with him for the task of getting them from River Run to Cassidy Rock and specifically 10 of them will be watching Edmure Tully day and night because they know how valuable he is to this spark of rebellion that could happen and those 10 men have been ordered to fill Edmure full of arrows should he try and escape at any point and Jamie actually knowing again the importance of prisoners commands that the exact same thing happen to Jane Westling if needs be oh dear the general idea goes that at some point during this procession the group will be attacked by I don't know the brotherhood or the blackfish, or direwolves. Heck, maybe a mix of all three. It could be. It could be anyone. Who knows who's coming? It could be literally anyone. But what we're sure of is that there's going to be chaos. I think there's probably going to be a lot of blood and a lot of death. There'll be confusion. And we're all assuming that our regular POV thing, our regular prologue POV thing will happen where the prologue POV dies. Probably anyway. Mm-hmm. 
So this is where we can get into that deep dive. And like I said, we could spend two hours on it or try not to, but uh, we definitely could because we're going to discuss who the POV will be, uh, what will actually happen, the repercussions of these possible plot points, and also the general patterning of the prologue chapters. In fact, I think we'll start there before we start going through those potential POVs. Emily, would you like to remind us of previous prologues and the patterns and the structures and where this potential ambush or slaughter could fit in? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I want to thank one of our listeners, Micah, because we had a long conversation about this that really helped me formulate some ideas. So <laughs> um, just as a recap, you know, we had White Walkers or the others um, in Game and Storm prologues. We had mm-hmm. Poison in Clash and Feast. And then we had Warging in Dance. So, you know, in terms of the the magic we've seen in the prologue chapters so far, we, you know, we have a few repeated themes. Warging is really the only one we've only seen the one time. You know, so there are plenty of options for for magic in this prologue, and I'll hit uh, a few of these. Um, so, you know, poisons, potions, everyone, you know, maybe not everyone's favorite, but definitely a, a fan favorite uh, or, or someone who intrigues the fans a lot. Sybil Spicer, we know she's with uh, this group here. There's potential she has something up her sleeve, especially if you believe that the theory that the real Jane has been swapped out by the time we see her in J- a Jamie Feast chapter. So that would mean that Sybil is part of the double cross. You know, warging, as I mentioned, that's that's only come up once. So if, if George wants to repeat himself or kind of uh, double back on these themes like we've seen him do before, then this is a good option. We know that Nymeria is around the river, Riverlands uh, with her great wolf pack or, or Chekhov's wolf pack, as some, some call it. <laughs> um, Arya's been having those wolf dreams still. She's pretty connected to Nymeria all the way across the Narrow Sea. So, um, you know, there's definitely potential there. We've got Lady Stoneheart. This seems unlikely because she was pretty tied up right at the end of uh of where we mm. left things in feast and dance delivering justice to brienne and probably jamie but you know it's not entirely impossible that she could show back up uh we just don't know where things will pick back up and the exact timing um of how that'll all shake out there are of course other options for magic um you know that that i didn't cover here new magic um you know the uh, magic is reawakening in the world so you know there, there are other options you know i mean of course dragons are back but i really don't see that happening because they are all very very far away right now so. Yeah, that that definitely would be a surprise that one. <laughs> but you can never be too sure with George. He's always ready to surprise us. That'd be a great way to introduce the five year gap of ha, you thought I cut it? Yeah. It's happening. <laughs> the dragons are yeah. here. <laughs> no, it's great. I, if anyone's been listening for a long time for scraps and scrolls, you know, every time the prologues come up we do do a big deep dive into what happens in the odd numbered books versus what happens in the even numbered books and what we can work out so it's always fun to do that stuff Uh, so in terms of i mean even with the jane news where he says oh yes i said it jane would be there but i didn't say she'd be the pov well that was quite a while ago now already so we can never trust george he might have changed his mind maybe jane's not in it at all maybe he's completely changed his mind on what this prologue will be since then stranger things have happened but we'll go what we've got and what we're thinking for now so if we do accept that the chapter is likely to include an assault on the western procession which i think me and emily both do then i think this is going to be the most important prologue so far at least the most famous in world because the other ones the other five they're all small individual stories that they're knock-on effects they're not seen until much much later or still completely unknown by most anyway the exception to that would be the assault on the fist of the first men which to be fair we didn't actually see in the prologue but it was obviously right around the corner 
corner but even that was up on the edge of the world and it's not exactly common knowledge or be even believed by people up on the wall let alone the rest of the world whereas this one if we are right this will be smack in the middle of the south almost the center of the continent really there's famous names involved as Emily's just reminded us of there's valuable hostages everyone knows that this is going on where they're going so if they don't show up and they'll get torn to pieces or whatever happens people are going to know about it there are going to be some really deep political repercussions on both sides this will be big big news yeah i mean 400 people don't just you know not show up with critical hostages you know this is i, I totally agree Precisely. with you this is this is not an isolated incident this is not something that's gonna take a while to trickle down to to other pov characters the people are going to know fairly quickly yeah, this will be big, big stuff. I don't think we're going to have to wait until the end of the book, like like in Feast with Sam and Pete. I don't think we're going to have to wait that long for this to be showing up again. So we're already breaking one trait of the prologue patterns, uh, which, like I say, we do like to look at here in the aisle, but we're also doing so geographically as well. Yeah, so all the other prologues, as you said, are kind of dotted around the perimeter of Westeros. And, you know, that's kind of out the window now, unless we're totally off base here. There is a chance that this POV could actually be further down the line when they actually arrive at Casterly Rock, but um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, prevailing theories suggest otherwise, so. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely possible, but I think we're hoping not, because <laughs> that would also feel a bit like a cheat, I think. Uh, if we're going to see Castle Rock, I think we want to see it properly, like in a few chapters, and probably via one of our preferred Lannisters. So I don't want to see that in a prologue, just very quickly. I want to see it properly later. Exactly. Now also, in keeping with the structure of previous prologues, they're all, like I mentioned a minute ago, they're all personal goals that fail. Will, that's a bit more of a, a team goal. But after that, Crescent, he wants to get rid of Melisandre. Chet, he wants to get out of there and uh, run away before the battle starts. Pate wants to buy Rosie, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And Varamir, not much better, wants to just keep himself alive. And they all fail. So what version of that are we going to see? Because obviously this isn't going to be a personal goal. It's hard to see because look, there's 400 people. There's lots going on. Well, you, you gave me a little bit of an idea there bringing this up, which is, okay. you know, thinking back to what you said about you know Jamie's orders of these 10 guards who are ordered to you know watch Edmure we've got the same thing with Jane where there are key people who are told you know if anything goes down you take these prisoners out so mm -hmm. you know that could be taken on as a personal goal by a potential POV character. That's very true. I mean, I'm sure George is going to be able to find a personal goal for whoever he does select as, as his POV, which we'll get into in a moment. And uh, it's just the difference will be, it will be personal and small, maybe in the chapter. But as we've just said, the stakes are too high now. It's too uh, on stage. Everyone will know about it. So it might start small, but I'm going to bet by the end of the prologue chapter, it'll end up being quite big. Now, I think George is going to make a statement with this chapter. He's already been doing it lately in Scraps and Scrolls with the preview chapters, and this one's going to come before all of them. This is the first actual chapter of a book that he himself has told us is going to be really dark and terrible. And coming from George, who's written the previous five books, I think that means something. <laughs> yeah. He's going to get us off the block with something really bad. He's going to set the tone. And also considering the weight we've had as well, George has heard all the idiots on the internet moaning at him. I think he's going to tell us straight away why it was worth the weight. And he's just going to set it off with a bang. Mm -hmm. It's going to be really terrible and it'll be really cool, but it'll be probably really, really horrible as well. Yeah. I agree. On top of that, I think we're going to see the larger themes of this book contained within the prologue because, again, that's normally what happens. We've seen that in previous books, especially I feel the later we went in the series, uh, that got even stronger. Uh, Varamir, for example, is so much to relate from 
him to Bran and to John as well. I think we're going to see even more this time. We're going to see further deconstruction of society. Society is breaking down throughout Westeros. We're probably going to see that happen and what people are capable of doing to each other. Like Emily just said, the kind of chaos that can erupt and the effect that has on the group, but the effect that has on the individual as well. We're going to see more of how visitors and prisoners are treated. There's the ever-present theme of vengeance, which comes up in almost every episode we've done so far, and I'm sure we'll continue to do and also like Emily said the magical side coming out to much more common knowledge if the direwolves do come in force which I think we're all kind of hoping for we'll talk about that later as well but again that's something completely different normally out on the edge no one really sees it no one knows what's really going on with Melisandre and Crescent everyone just kind of looks the other way but now with a great big force army of direwolves coming out that's much harder to ignore Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, we want to talk a little bit about location. That was part of the question. So, you know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it's something in the opening foothills of the Westerlands. You know, everyone relaxes a bit. They think, okay, good, we're back <laughs> in our home turf. Yeah, home and dry. But the Blackfish, the Blackfish knows these parts. He won a campaign here earlier in the war. You know, it linked very strongly to what he used to do with Rob in terms of the, the victory plan uh, via Hidden Path, Rise Attack. Yeah, that's very much in his, his resume isn't it that kind of thing i wonder even if we'll see like a semi whispering wood repeat somewhere if he is with the brotherhood again we'll come to that in a moment when we go through the individual people but if he is with them then we know their tactics of using fire arrows to spread chaos and to drive people out into the open where they can be cut down we could have a bit of archer versus archer talk here lots of archer talk in early winds actually with uh, what might happen at storm's end and on elsewhere as well yeah you know another option here is a potential you know of a care of assault you know that's that's certainly mm-hmm. um what they are in in large numbers i believe it was yoke boy who brought up once that this was the plan of the night's watch against mance you know he they wanted to seize them when they were moving and uh you know maybe a little unprepared you know we heard about that in chet's chapter obviously that didn't come to pass due to what happened at the fist but i think you know george is always kind of loath to let these kind of opportunities pass him by yeah yoke boy uh mentioned that on that live stream last year that was a really that was a really good point that definitely stuck in my mind yeah you know another thing that comes to mind for me is like you know uh, the big expensive scene from the show that that i don't think will come to pass in the same way but the whole idea of the the loot train you know and that that Mm. happened to a lannister force so um Mm. could that be you know potentially uh hinting at, at at this which is you know um about to come to pass 400 Lannisters moving along you know in the same vein Rob and Brynden they had an unused plan of leading Tywin Lannister's army into a favorable land by the coast uh you know I don't we'll get to that specific spot but we you know might see some similar tactics there yeah I think they're gonna have to take a really big wrong turn to get anywhere near a coast but we could see something similar like like you've just said Brynden knows the land he had to scour it originally anyway so we could see the same idea just in a different place that's definitely something we could look forward to so let's look back at other prologues and how they might give hints that's something we could go on and on about i know it sounds like we've already done a lot but there's always more to talk about with this but instead let's now switch lanes a little bit and we'll talk about the big topic that lots of people want to get to which is who will be the actual pov for this chapter which incidentally still links into patterning and structure and theme anyway depending on who we're talking about so let's go through some possibilities and maybe at the end we can each make our picks for either who we'd like to see or who we think would be most likely sure so i'll i'll kind of you know bullet out some of the the high level thoughts here and then uh we can deep dive into to some of these so yeah yeah 
you know, um, from the column, we obviously have any of the Westerlings that are there with them, which would include Sybil Spicer as well. We've got, you know, a few of the named soldiers. I think, you know, the main one we all know about is Forley Prester, who's leading this. Um, but there are potential adjoinders who aren't noted there. I think some people have thrown around the idea that it could be Ilan Payne, but he's not with them currently. I think uh, Lady Gwyn kind of debunked this already, but it, it is tossed it around enough I wanted to mention it um, if there are any frays in the column I'm just going to say I will root that the POV is another fray because <laughs> uh, you know one more dead fray at the end of the chapter w- will not upset me at all um, you know from the potential rescue force obviously Blackfish is kind of everyone's uh, first go to but I just I'm, I just want to say like please no I don't want him to die yet <laughs> I want him to live under normal circumstances I would say he's you know cunning enough to stay out of moral peril but as you as we've talked about already a lot there's going to be a lot of chaos going on and his family has lost so much. Like, I mean, uh, obviously some of the Starks are actually alive, but he doesn't know that. You know, Edmure is kind of the last thing he's got. What else is he holding on for at this point, you know? Um, yeah, that we talk about making a, a splash and, like, setting the tone. That'd be a good way to get it, because I know your opinions differ on the Blackfish, but he's beloved here on the Isle, and I, for one, if I open up and I realise that it is Brendan Tully as the prologue POV, I'm going to put it back down, and I'm going to do some swear at George and then I will pick it back up again but I'll do some swearing first yeah I'm gonna have the Kleenex ready if that's the case um, mm. I, I want to point out a few other options uh, that that um, our listener Micah had thrown out. You know, we've seen some scholarly figures uh, show up. We, you know, with with Crescent, with Pate, although him being a scholar is a little debatable. Um, you know, uh, scholar gets beat by magic is kind of a theme we've seen. So, mm. um, you know, I'm curious about who this might be uh, with the column. We don't have any names right now. Uh, another potential option is, you know, we've seen kind of young or innocent folk as well. It's not, you know, necessarily always a warrior who's uh, in these shoes. So Micah said, you know, Red Walder Frey could be an excellent choice as a child page to give us a view on, you know, the Westerlands, page work, Freys, and just that that whole trope as we've seen uh, young and innocent. We know George likes writing the knights and the knights in various stages of their career. So that'd be a nice kind of addition to do that, to do someone a bit lower down the pecking order still and from a squire or something like that actually uh, you mentioning about scholars and stuff I mean that's something that again very easily could translate out into the book because we might be about to see a whole bunch of maesters get beaten by a whole bunch of magic if Euron has his way we're going to come to that in a later question but that could definitely be a link between prologue and big event in the book so that definitely makes sense Speaking of, you know, people with potential ties to magic, do you want to kind of deep dive into one of our first candidates? Yeah, sure. Let's start off with Sybil Spicer. You mentioned Sybil Spicer right at the beginning there. That's a very possible candidate, I think. It would be really interesting to get inside her head to see how deep her plans went back in uh, Storm of Swords type territory around the Red Wedding. Uh, what her, how she justifies it to herself for what she's done. She had that famous interaction with Jamie in Feast uh, when he did get inside River Run. So she can now be thinking where she went wrong, what she's gonna do now, how she's gonna react to Jamie because she's not got exactly what she wanted out of the deal. It's obviously not a completely happy ending. She's not in great terms with Jane at the moment because of pregnancy blocking and everything like that. So that would be interesting to see again how she somehow manages to uh, justify that to herself that'd be interesting to me as well because it reminds me so much of Hoster and what he did with Lysa and obviously we're still in the same kind of territory Riverlands territory Mm -hmm. there 
She would also be the first ever female prologue POV, so that, that's just a that'd be interesting to tick that off because we've not had that before. It would fit the Chet Varamir role of bad people that we knew before. We'd met both of those characters before they became prologue POVs. I think we know Sybil more than we knew both of them, but still, that's very interesting. Oh, I, I, I'll jump in here. You know, yeah, I think we might be rooting for someone like Sybil to actually, you know, get ripped apart by a wolf or something like that. You know, it, 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 a lot of people just assume she's this terrible person, but there are theories out there that, you know, she's got her own schemes going on. And so getting inside of her head and, t- you know, mm-hmm. turning that trope on her on its head of like, we hate this woman to all of a sudden, oh, maybe she did swap Jane or maybe the plan goes deeper and they've been, you know, leading Jamie on. Uh, you know, he's not as cunning as Tyrion. He he might not catch on to something like that, uh, though he is learning. So that could also play into what you said earlier about, you know, the personal goal that uh, the POV character has that falls apart. So, you know, maybe she has gone to great yeah. lengths either. And I think either way, there's a case for that with with Sybil. Either she's gone to great lengths to, you know, play into what the Lannisters have demanded and, you know, blocking the pregnancy, or she's taken huge personal risk trying to beguile them. And that all falls apart, too, because of the chaos of what happened here so yeah i think that's another classic george hallmark that even even if she did do everything as we assume she has he's got the skill to still make us see it from her angle and see why she did it and it's probably not just pure ambition or whatever else you want to call it like nothing so black and white in this world george would be able to get that across to us so that'd be interesting to see and how much sympathy or empathy he can drum up before again let's say it, it does go ultimate chaos and she is viciously ripped apart by a wolf or something like you say filled with arrows who knows (laughs) yeah filled with arrows whatever it might be we've seen that kind of thing from george before obviously with theon and cersei and okay this is a smaller scale but it would be the exact same thing he's done it a bunch of times it is classic george my thought would actually be going straight to jane if she has to witness such a thing because like i say she's at odds with her mother right now but i don't think she wants to see her be eaten alive in front of her or whatever it is right and plus that way we would have some connection to other historical sources from fire and blood because jane wouldn't be the first monarch if that's what you want to still call her to watch their mother be eaten by some for lack of better term mythical beast like i say that does happen in fire and blood yeah so you know there are like we mentioned there are other westerlings who um who could come up right We've got Gowan Westerling, we've got Reynold Westerling, obviously Jane and or Jane's double, if you believe that theory, are, are with the uh, with the group as well. So do you have any thoughts on any of them? Yeah, I think Gowan, he's interesting. It could be him. I don't think there's as much pull for him as there would be from Cyril, because as far as we know, he's not part of the scheming. Again, it would be horrible if Jane had to watch him die. The reverse is obviously true. If he sees Jane die, that's going to be terrible to read for us i don't think he's as interesting as sybil would be though now reynold westling well he would be very very interesting but i think that's a hell of a long shot considering the last time we saw him he was falling into the green fork during the red wedding uh, and everyone assumes he is dead and that's definitely what the phrase claim but what a good time it would be to suddenly reappear have him come and save his family from captivity and maybe he even reappears with grey wind and we could all just be cheering the whole way through uh maybe even grey wind has robbed soul inside him and the young wolf himself has come back to free his lady wife we might be dreaming a bit there 
I'm going to go ahead and say this. This is probably a little bit tinfoily, given that you know, like you tin said, uh, Reynold is probably dead. Grey Wind is probably dead. You know, um, but hey, you never know. We live in hope. That would go against everything we've just said about George trying to make it clear this is a dark book. But still, uh, we can live in hope. Yeah, we're here to explore every angle, right? Not not necessarily just make one definitive prediction. Yeah, sure. And one more point, actually, before we move on from this family, if it was to be Sybil, either as POV or as a general character, to be fair. Let's say she does get eaten by a direwolf. Well, I think that counts as symbolic justice because she was the one to betray the direwolf. So that could be her comeuppance, couldn't it? Mm-hmm. But let's move on from that family to an even more famous one. Uh, you mentioned them quickly. You said the Blackfish. We'll leave him for a second. It could be Edmure. He could be our prologue POV, which would obviously be quite a break way more famous character than any other prologue POV, even more famous than our epilogue from Kevin, who was kind of the first like, real, real character to get one of these. Edmure would still be a jump above that, which, okay, would be cool, but I say, no, thank you. I don't I don't want to see that. I think it's unlikely anyway, because uh, they will definitely try and keep him. He can be used still as a manipulation tool against the River Run holding phrase and against the other River Lords as well, or if the Blackfish resurfaces. So they're going to do their best to keep keep Edmure alive but as we said it could all go wrong I think it depends on the circumstances and who is doing the attacking you know if it's a wild pack mm. of dire wolves like are the soldiers those 10 guards going to follow those orders of, of put fill him with arrows probably not as readily as they would if they saw the brotherhood without banners or you know some northmen or or someone else who they think um you That's know is right. actually trying to rescue Edmure I don't I don't think that those guards would readily say oh gosh wolves are coming that's clearly the Starks fill him with arrows you know um mm. the, you know might take them a little longer to arrive at that yeah it's going to be a little bit distracted I mean, they've all seen armies of or uh, forces of men come at them before but it's a little bit different if you see i don't know however many if you see 50 wolves coming out of the trees you're probably staring at that for a little bit and forgetting what you're supposed to be doing in terms of edmure and jane as much as we don't want it to be edmure we could see it uh, we could see that moment of death especially if edmure gets one more moment of glory or heroism i think we're going to see like that initial thrill of escape he thinks yeah I can get away maybe he gets really close to doing that but he sees that Jane is struggling and goes back and saves her and dies in the process or in the attempt rather anything could happen really again maybe he has to witness her death so that he can view the final closing of his king and Rob and the end of his line uh, especially if it is revealed she was hiding a pregnancy we could go for that real tragic arc at the beginning again it's almost a certainty there's going to be tragedy somewhere in this chapter considering the book we're, we're talking about mm-hmm. here and if Edmure was to die in turn that would make the Blackfish an even more interesting character than he already is because he would now believe himself the absolute last of his family there'd be a kind of Duran Martel vibe of being the one left behind you're not supposed to be the only one left behind when you get to a certain age you're supposed to have uh, descendants etc and I wonder if that would make Brynden regret or reflect on his life choices and the arguments he had with Hoster uh, over those lifestyle choices about getting married etc because obviously if he had given in and then perhaps there could be more Tully children around to carry on this ancient name instead of just him an old man now the pressure of being the last one in such a long line of that big important name that would be incredible now obviously that would depend whether this is happening before or after he meets Lady Stoneheart and if he recognises that as his niece and does that count as being alive it's all a bit complicated but uh, that would be well it'd even make it much more incredible for him or maybe it'd make it that much worse 
Yeah. Uh, it would be the first great family to actually fully fall. Um, you know, the blackfish, mm. like we say, it would linger. But, um, you know, if he continues on with his plan of no heirs or, I mean, even if he is rethinking that, when is he going to find time for that right now? Yeah. Um, you know, I so this could be that, that first great family to go. Um, you know, maybe the Aarons could potentially beat him there unless Harry Harding is going to get renamed as an Aaron um, or unless our previous predictions of of, uh, <laughs> of Sweet Robin, uh, unfortunately not making it, are totally off base. I don't think they are, but if they are, you know, the House Aaron could eke them out there, but due to this being a discussion about the prologue chapter, I don't see how that would happen. Hmm. It all depends when, when things take place, I guess. It's all still a bit up in the air considering timeline. Mm-hmm. Now, the other way that Edmure could go down, that yeah, of course, it could be those Lannisters following Jamie's orders maybe does get shot down at the last moment. I mean, you can see the cinematics of it, can't you? Like, he's running for the trees, he's got 10 metres left, he's got 5 metres left, and then he feels the arrow in his back, or something like that. I'm sure George is uh, capable of writing that kind of scene, but maybe it's even the Brotherhood. Maybe they kind of see it as a mercy killing, that do they want him to spend the rest of his life as a prisoner in Castle Rock? Because don't forget the threats that Jamie made against him. Yeah. Uh, at the end of feast as well he was he went kind of dark jamie for a moment there and you know you can spend the rest of your life in a cupboard if i want you to that kind of thing so maybe if they think oh actually it's not going well we're not gonna be able to get him out well the next best thing is to kill him then and then they won't have the control over the phrase etc etc maybe they don't want to have leverage so they could be that more brutal because we know the brotherhood they're getting darker could just be an accident too if it's the brotherhood i mean if he's got 10 guards around him and we're we've got we're talking about archers like you know that that could just be a total accident yeah especially if like we keep saying the whole thing does just descend into chaos and obviously the brotherhood they're not going to be expecting an army of wolves either probably so if they think oh this is going well and then the wolves come out and start eating them as well it all goes wrong the plan goes out the window the arrow goes the wrong way and that's the end of edmure yeah so very easy to see. I personally think that if it's the guard, his guard taking him out, that we'll see that not with him as the POV. I don't know why, but mm. I just think, you know, it'd be more impactful for the POV character to watch him fall to these 10 guards rather than for him to be the one. Although, you know, him getting taken out by multiple at once would certainly harken back to how John dies, and that could be an interesting angle as well. That's true. Yeah. It would definitely be quite a leap, like we say, from normal prologue POV characters to someone of Edmure's status. But mm-hmm. Who knows? Speaking of someone of status, right? Let's talk Blackfish. Exactly. Let's talk Blackfish. We did a minute ago there, but let's imagine if he is the POV himself. Uh, As you can probably tell, both me and Emily, we're desperate to see the Blackfish again after so long away, but we don't want to see him in this form. We don't want him to be the POV because we know how they end up. And normally we think we'd be pretty safe from such a fate because... uh, like I say, our POVs for these types of chapters tend not to be highborn and they tend not to be famous. But then again, the most recent one we had at the end of Dance in an epilogue, well, he was another very well-known uncle. So like Emily said, maybe George is going to go back to back a bit here, but I hope not. But either way, he could easily be involved. You could definitely see how he could be the POV. He might even be involved without setting foot on the page. But let's just imagine, I've been saying for ages back in Scraps and Scrolls and on other places, how much I enjoy the idea of him 
joining up with the Brotherhood. In fact, I think it was the very first thing I ever wrote for History of Westeros, like four years ago, was uh, the Brynden essay. And that was something I got obsessed with. Him joining the Brotherhood and how his skills in terms of his knowledge of terrain and the tactics that he uses that we saw earlier in the books, that would mesh insanely well with the Brotherhood. It would go into this great combination that would be perfect for this kind of assault. This would be the real good chance for George to show us that. Again, selecting the perfect land for a trap or an uh, ambush or whatever it is, knowing how to pick off outriders because that's something else Forley Prestor says to Jamie. Like, don't worry, I'm going to screen our movements, I'm going to use scouts, I'll be extra, extra, extra safe. But if there's anyone who knows how to combat that, it is Brynden Blackfish. And he could even maybe blame their deaths on the wolves if there are wolves in these woods as well. So it just seems like perfect opportunity. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You know, I think that the Blackfish also would fit well into the oath-keeping theme that seems to kind of dominate this area of the story in terms of we've got, you know, Stoneheart, Jamie, Brienne. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, but but the Blackfish has his own oaths as well. You know, he he was left with the defense of the area and of Rob's bride. Uh, this is his mm. chance to keep his house alive. You know, especially if he doesn't want to marry, he certainly wants Edmure around. So we could see him going all out here. I think I mentioned this right early on when we started talking about this question that, you know, he doesn't have a whole lot left to really yeah. live for. Uh, you know, he is normally a really cautious person who is going to think things through really strategically. And I think he certainly will still approach it with that kind of level head but you know i think you know at the same time once once they arrive at casterly rock like that's game over for him saving yeah, them yeah, so very much. i could really see you know him just totally going all out we don't again we will just be a broken record here but we don't want to see him be the pov for obvious reasons but it could be very emotional you know one last word to edmure uh who he's mentored and and loved you know maybe getting cut down defending either edmure or jane i suspect that's probably too nice and clean of a message uh for george here <laughs> uh, but hey who knows yeah, it's probably a little bit too yeah nice <laughs> for the chapter we're going to get. But it would be, if he's going to go down, I'd rather it be like that. But probably not. It'd probably be a bit more bloody. It's interesting you say about him not having anything left. So I think you're right. I think it's pretty much this and getting River Run back. And well, we'll talk about it a bit later. But this is probably the precursor to that. He probably thinks, okay, well, we need to go and do this first. Like you say, much harder time limit on this. And then using that, we can go go out to River Run, and that, that's his that's his aim. And we did ask a minute ago, would he have met Stoneheart by this point? Would he have signed on with the Brotherhood? How would that have uh, how would that have happened if he has met her? Well, that'd be a shame for us to not see that on page because that would definitely be a scene that I want to see. How how in the world? How do you accept that? How do you see that and have your mind keep going straight? But I suppose it could have happened, and we can kind of get a reflection or a flashback on that in the chapter originally he probably would have been seeking out Beric because the rumours still fly around the Berics around. It's doubtful he would have actually signed up without a face-to-face -face with the leader, so you'd think, eh, maybe he has met Stoneheart by this point, but we don't know. He might not be of the Brotherhood anyway. There's the Tully Garrison that had to leave Riverrun himself, so he could have rejoined those. I think it's Jenna Lannister at the end. Someone says, oh, they've they've sworn not to take up arms against Lannisters and the Freys, and she's like, okay, yeah, great. I th I'm sure they'll stick to that, so maybe he'll be proving the truth of those words, or he could be working to the same goal as the Brotherhood and not know it. I, I, the timing of that would be a little suspect if they all come on the same day, but yeah. you never know. Yeah, I agree with you that, you know, it would, it would be a shame to not see, you know, know some sort of connection happen uh you know and maybe it's just because we don't have a pov character you know maybe it's not stoneheart who he meets but some emissary from the brotherhood but you, you know i think yeah I, there's flaws there i guess <laughs> 
And we talked about the location earlier on, but let's be even more specific because Brendan, he has experience of navigating the golden tooth and maybe that's where this is set. Maybe he uses that as a choke point where those 400 men, they would be, they'd be pretty screwed to be honest. Brendan knows how to set an ambush and we know that he does, but he also knows there's a huge risk to lose your prime objectives and Edmure and Jane, which I mean, if they go, then the whole thing is pointless. As much as you might be able to save others and again, assault River Run, there's no point as Emily and me have both just said it's about saving his family saving the house and also fulfilling his oaths his oaths were to save jane look after jane and to look after the land well that can't happen without edmure so if he does have a plan you're gonna think he must be pretty confident to go through with it he must have it planned down to the inch he's not going to risk it he's not going to roll the dice so to speak and maybe for all we know edmure's on in it he might know exactly what to do when it all kicks off they might have had that conversation so you never know. Yeah. You know, another thought that I had is, you know, we're, we think that this is going to be some big battle. And I, I, I still believe that. But um, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that the Blackfish is part of one of these big forces. He could have his own stealth mission, his own personal agenda here and, and think maybe I can infiltrate a little bit easier if I go in by myself or with a small force and attach on. And that'd mm. be a certainly a lot easier way to get to his prime objectives of, of uh, Edmure or Jane, um, you know, so perhaps he's in the middle of that when another force, whether it be the Brotherhood, whether it be the Wolves, whether it be totally something else, come in. We both probably think it's a little convenient if two separate forces just happen yeah. to attack at the same time. You know, if we've got Tully's and Brotherhood and Wolves and like all this stuff going on, that would that, that would be a lot. I think, you know, the message of what's going on could get a little muddied there. I think we are expecting chaos, but even when there's chaos, I think there's still themes and plans uh, behind what George pulls together. So, you know, maybe if the Blackfish is there, it's not part of some big force, maybe. Yeah, that's definitely another angle to go. You could easily see that of, again, maybe one or two sneaking in and then the rest all, you know, hidden in the tree line to make the escape. And maybe it's even something where Brendan goes in and he can get them out, but he's got to stay behind and that's how he dies or that kind of thing. Yeah, I could easily see that fitting. While we're talking about them, let's talk a little bit about the Brotherhood because this is still a group that we we really know fantastically little about since Merritt's epilogue, since Lady Stoneheart came aboard. Uh, We've discussed this so much during the Feast Scraps and Scrolls that change in their philosophy and the kind of corruption uh, element that Lady Stoneheart has brought and, you know, that whole theme of vengeance going too far and it not being worth anything. So it'll be interesting to see how far they've gone in that. Like, are they out to gain the objectives of Edmure and Jane or are they out just to kill some Lannisters and it will depend what part of the Brotherhood is where because again that's something else we really don't know we have so little information uh, from the change in leadership surely for instance I wonder if the Mad Huntsman makes a return we haven't seen him since Storm and the last we heard he was supposed to be south of the Manda buying food but that was ages ago now and he really really hates Lannisters so if you're uh, advertising this out to the group if you're putting it in the Brotherhood WhatsApp chat and saying hey does anyone want to lead this mission he'd sign up straight away he'd be all in on it mm-hmm. yeah I think you know so we've obviously got a, a legit question here about you know how dedicated is lady stoneheart and the brotherhood in general to saving people versus the idea of vengeance you know i keep bringing up that that nickname of mother merciless and Mm. 
if that's really true, how much does she care or remember about her family? Obviously, you know, she wants vengeance on on those who, you know, killed her children, but how much is left of, you know, Edmure or what's going on and how connected is she to their movements? So, you know, do you think that the Brotherhood and Stoneheart would prefer to kill as many as possible or to get Edmure out and be more selective about it? I think, you know, we just talked about the Blackfish, obviously, you know, maybe going for the latter, but I think with the Brotherhood, it's less certain. You also have to consider that back when Barrack was in charge, he had a bit of charisma he had he could talk and speak Mm. full words without having his kind of throat uh speech so you know um it's a little easier (laughs) to you know pull your people together and kind of connect them to a common goal when you are uh, a little less dead with them so fragmented with stoneheart's communication issues with her you know vengeance and rage are we going to see fragments of the brotherhood splintering off and doing different things and if so could this be one of those things yeah this is a really big question i guess something i'm really obsessed with is what's happened to the brotherhood we did see it kind of briefly at the end of brienne's feast arc like just how much darker the individual people were and like some of them they weren't all happy at the beginning anyway, but they have got worse. So it is interesting. You would think the answer is obvious and like, yeah, of course she wants Edmure back. Of course she does and stuff like that. But it's just not certain. We really can't be certain. And I, again, that would really hit on those themes that George wants to hit on of, of vengeance going too far. It relates back to that answer we had from the Hedge Knight earlier on of what, what is revenge, what counts, what's justified, what's not. And I, you don't know, do you? She might want Edmure, fine, but she might not say anything about Jane. So do they stop stop and bother saving Jane? Is that in Lady Stoneheart's catalogue of who she wants to save? We don't, she might not even want Edmure. It could be the exact opposite. You know, she could be thinking could more be. about her potential grandchildren and someone who's really connected to Rob, whereas it's been a long time since she's seen Edmure. I think in her own POVs, she's somewhat critical of him. So, you know, how, mm-hmm. how you know, who's going to win that out if, if, you know, it comes down to one or the other? I think we should just be prepared to see like the worst possible thing. So, like we could see Edmure being dragged away and he's saying no you've got to save Jane and they're all like not on our orders mate she goes down with the rest of them and we have to watch Jane possibly pregnant Jane die or be killed by wolves or something else we just don't know and there's other people as well from the Brotherhood that we haven't seen for ages that could come back now they might not even be of the Brotherhood because again like you say I mean, they there might have been a split not everyone would have wanted to go with Stoneheart it's very very different from Beric but we don't know who's gone where so we could see Angai come back we could see Greenbeard come back again we said about the Tully Garrison as well in fact there's actually a few kind of remnant groups still assumedly just wandering around looking for ways to survive so they might have joined in with the Brotherhood or they could be acting as bandits themselves and there's many many different groups left from the War of the Five Kings so they could all get involved and any one of them could be a POV again Angai that'd be a cool POV I'd I'd sign up for Mm -hmm. that it would be very very interesting yeah um, you know, I think like we we debunked that it's probably not going to be Ilan. I mean, we weren't even the original people to debunk that, but it's a shame because it could be a really fun, you know, writing experiment. It'd be very cool to see the thoughts and how those even flow together of someone who is mute. You know, is he extremely mm. introspective and quick, but we just don't see that in him or, you know, I, we, we know nothing about him really other than his actions. So um, that could be really interesting. Yeah, that was something I, th- I think I brought up on the live stream last time with Radio Restos of, yeah, I think George would just really like that challenge of writing someone. Obviously, we ha- don't have any other 
POVs in the series so that'd be really really interesting to see how he tackles that and we don't know much about the man but we do know where he's been so he could just open up a treasure trove of memories about his time at court and the Mad King and Tywin anything with House Lannister so that could be very important uh so yeah it would have been cool but unfortunately not going to happen much more likely we mentioned earlier I think uh maybe everyone's favorite choice it could be Forley Prester the man in charge there is good reason why he's a favorite because well if we go back to what we said about people having plans and them not working out well this would be first choice this would be fascinating to see all this chaos happening through the eyes of someone who's supposed to be keeping it all together and just ultimately failing kind of falling under this wave of whatever it is and then he'll have the moral dilemma of giving that order to shoot Edmure and or Jane he was okay with the Edmure bit when that was first brought up but when Jamie said about Jane it was like oh don't know about that I'm not really comfortable but orders are orders so will he go through with them will he not will that cost him in some way yeah like we said that would fit into the structuring that we mentioned earlier quite a lot I don't know what you think about him yeah I I would agree with that I think you know it'd be interesting also to see the POV of a Lannister bannerman you know we certainly have seen Mm. POVs of people who are aligned with the Starks or aligned with Daenerys or or, uh, you know if for a short time even aligned with uh, with Aegon um, through Tyrion's eyes but we haven't really gotten many POVs of from the Lannister perspective other than actual Lannisters so that that could be really interesting yeah, I guess the only one we've really had is Eris Oakheart, and that's technically he's not even yeah. Like he's not a Lannister person, but he is. He's being his Lannister person is a boss right now. He's a he's a Baratheon man, right? Wink, wink. Yeah, technically. <laughs> Um, that's what they say yeah. that's what they tell me okay okay it's been quite a while in this question i did warn you but uh <laughs> i'll try and wrap it up but i do want to get in just this last bit about the wolves because i personally do think they turn up i think that is the the kind of point of the chapter the thing that really sets it apart and i think they they come and they start ripping everyone apart and i think they probably aren't too picky about who they're ripping ev- apart either there's just too many thematic values in there that they can fulfill it's that magic is a sword without a hill idea that i always go on and on about it's the idea that vengeance can go too far uh, again we know that's a major component of the whole series but especially with stoneheart and with Aya. and it would be classic george giving us exactly what we want and then making us feel horrible when it actually arrives on page because we love Nymeria we love dire wolves we love the connection between her and Aya we've been waiting for that to uh, kind of manifest and mature we've been waiting for Nymeria to turn back up it's been ages since we've actually properly seen her but what if they do come and just go for everyone what if we see innocence torn apart and literally eaten alive what if George does go uber uber dark and make it super gruesome It would be awful, but it would fit in with the overall point of, at least probably this book's, humans can't handle the other world, though you're not supposed to mess with it. The magical winter is coming to mess you all up and you're all going to suffer regardless of what class you belong to. Again, I think that's pretty much the point of the series in a lot of ways. It definitely links with that making the mark thing that we mentioned earlier from George. And again, the prologues do genuinely link up with later themes in their respective books, and a gruesome wolf attack that goes too far could represent that pretty well. Technically, Nymeria and the others would be doing something right, I guess, that actually ends up more violent and horrific than you'd wish. And that's almost a carbon copy of exactly what we've seen from Aya recently. Mm -hmm. She's doing something we like and what is right, but the actual details of it... uh, 
they're a bit dodgy. Right. In fact, it does fit very well with what I'm always going on about with my dark, stark theory. I don't, I always go on about that. <laughs> I won't go through the whole thing for you, but it can happen to all of them. We've talked already in these episodes about Bran and what he's doing with Hodor. Uh, Sansor. Sansor? Sansa is being mentored by Peter Baelish, of all people. You don't get through that uh morally clean i don't think who knows what rickon's like now untamed <laughs> and wild and what john could come back with so it all fits i think it all links i think this could be the chapter that kicks that off at one point i believe one of the books was going to be called a time for wolves or why can't this prologue be called that instead yeah you know i think overall you know there's there's no more hiding the magic is coming for everyone we've seen little hints of it here and there but this would be a great way to to really introduce it i think right at the beginning of this question i mentioned you know we've seen two instances of poisoning and two instances of uh you know the others and so but we've only seen one instance of of warging so this could be where that comes in yeah definitely i do want to point out i will leave it there there's stuff we didn't even get to for this question I made him trim it down folks it i did yeah <laughs> i've been caught i'm gonna replace it with nba talk at the end instead okay, okay i will relent i will relinquish the floor i suppose after a good hour we can move on to question two Sure. And I will just let people know we're not going to do an hour on everything, <laughs> as you can probably see by the no, runtime. we're not going for a 10-hour episode. Not this time. Oh, no. The time zones make that a little tricky, don't they? Um, mm. Anyway, so um, our next question, question two of today, but question 22 in all, do you think that the wall will be down by whatever means by the end of the book? And actually, this is one of your questions, so I want to hand it over to you and, and hear what you have to say. Yeah, people haven't heard me talk enough yet. It's gonna, it's already back to me. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, we do have a related question that we'll get to later on in the, in the grand list of questions, but I think this one, this event, that would be the most prevalent and it would probably be the biggest thing, the biggest event of the entire series if the wall were to come down, especially on like a worldwide scale. So I'm very interested to hear not only Emily's opinions, but everyone listening as well, on whether, by whatever method, and there are several, that's not important right now, do we think the wall, at the end of the day, will be down by the end of the Winds of Winter? And maybe we should even, more to the point, should it be down in terms of structuring and how much time is left? Like, would that be a correct choice by George? In my opinion, and keeping to that structuring point, I do kind of think it almost has to be down by the end of the book. At the very end, it's fine by me. It would make a hell of a cliffhanger if that was like the last chapter or the epilogue or something. Could be a really cool super epilogue. But I'm just not sure it would work if it if it's left until dream. That would seem a bit odd to me. One of the larger questions remaining for the third act in total is how far the others are actually going to get are they going to be turned back at the wall or are they going to get to winterfell like in the show or do they make it through the neck and down do they come to our beloved isle i hope not but it's possible i don't know the specifics but i'm personally hoping they get pretty damn far i want them to swarm into the realm of the living with winterfell as that lone holdout lost in a sea of winter and death that's my view yeah, I mean, I think we've had so many people like denying them in, in the South and kind of, you know, okay, whatever, says Cersei. But, you know, you can't deny it once they start actually attacking not just, you know, these, these wildlings you don't care about, but your actual subjects you're supposed to care about and protect. 
Yeah, I think one of the worst endings for me is if like everyone in the north and John and whoever else, they beat them back and the people down south never even know it's a threat. That would annoy the hell out of me. It is possible, but it would annoy the hell out of me. So I agree, I agree. Hoping that doesn't happen. I think we do get like a big battle at the wall to try and delay them or whatever the circumstances are. But I just I just don't think that can be I don't think there can be quite enough time for all of that if the wall isn't even coming down until dream. I don't they can't get that far down unless I mean we don't know what the time scale is and how big that book is but it just seems weird to yeah. me and far be it from us to speculate on again size and maybe there is room for all that and we all know there's more than enough to get sorted elsewhere first there probably is time with Daenerys to come over still and then Daenerys to come north still but I just lean towards it coming down in this book I think it would be odd if this darkest book yet named the winds of winter didn't include the literal representation of winter finally making a big deal of themselves and entering the arena again it links to that prologue idea the wolves the magic is here at the end oh the others are here everyone actually knows about them and it would tie into these great constants that have failed in recent years how it is the great time of change and obviously none of them would be bigger than the breaking of the wall that would change everything it resets the whole table and the whole world and then that would allow for dream the final book to deal with this much changed world on the brink yeah i i would agree with that i mean so i think i think we're in agreement that the the you know the wall will be breached or down this book so that brings us to well okay how right Mm-hmm. Um, so I will say we obviously have some reasons to be skeptical that the Horn of Joramon can really perform the way that it's rumored to. Um, I think the biggest point of evidence to this is that the wall still stands. If this legendary item has existed for this long and people know it can bring the wall down, well, why hasn't it? How You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. you got to show me, not just tell me a little bit, you know. Um, I think Robert Baratheon even jokes with Ned in A Game of Thrones, the wall has stood for what? 8,000 years, it can keep a few days more. So (laughs) I have some thoughts here on this. You know, I think it's possible that the horn does have magical properties, but instead of it physically taking down an 800 foot tall wall, I mean, think about that. It could break these enchantments that bind the others to the northern side. So it could be a metaphorical taking down of the wall. I, you know, (laughs) just back to the an 800 foot tall wall coming down. I mean, if you've seen those videos of like glaciers ripping off, you know, there's going to be catastrophic effects. I don't like I think if that happens, anyone anywhere nearby is dead. You know, I I could just see that being a metaphorical yeah it could it could be i mean i can see either i can see george wanting to write that big cinematic piece of like you say what would it actually look like this thing coming down or i could see it the other way i think that's more than possible i think it would be very like george actually for something to still work how we fought but not in the way that we fought like, like you say the horn it can just turn off the electricity so to speak and let you through that kind of thing with the real horn or we assume the real horn being all the way down south with sam that cracked one that john found uh, up on the fist well it brings up a possibility that we mentioned in our recent scraps and scrolls forsaken episode that euron is going to get his hands on that horn and well we know he really likes horns so maybe he either just blows it straight up or maybe he knows what it is and he goes to the top of the high tower and blows it there because there's a possibility of the the two places the wall and the high tower being linked the opposite ends of the continent they were kind of built by the same person at least in some variation so that's another possibility yeah yep absolutely so the show obviously gave us 
ice dragon does ice damage to ice wall and destroys it. And I'm, I'm just like <laughs> laughing right now because I'm just going to go on record and say I don't find that super plausible. Um, you'll find out in my interview episode, but I, I play a lot of D&D and, uh, you know, it's like a very well-known thing. Uh, you know, if you are a creature of ice, you typically don't take a lot of damage from ice. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that wouldn't be my first option here, you know, because of the time element as well. You know, we have to get Daenerys and her dragons all the way to yeah. Westeros, to the wall. Um, it, you know, I think if that were the case, it would happen very late in the book. And as you say, you know, I think this is something that definitely is going to happen in Winds. Yeah, the only way I could see a dragon uh, being responsible in Winds, it'd be if Euron does get his hands on one, as he plans to. And like literally his first thing is, right, I'm going to the wall. I'm going to bring it down because I want my apocalypse to hurry up and start, which again could see him doing, but uh, probably not. I don't go with the I don't go with the dragon theory. Uh, yeah. And to be honest, to be honest, the the how of it is so wide open. It's it's one of those things that's still quite difficult to think about. It's something I don't guess about a lot because I'd rather just wait to find out. But I wouldn't be surprised if it is something to do with Stannis and or Bran. I mean, we've spoken before about Stannis being ousted or forced back to the wall. It's going to come up in another question later as well. He might get to the Night Fort possibly. There's always freaky things going up on the Night Fort. We know there's some bad times coming for him with Shireen etc etc. So some expect Stannis to finally break and join with the other side or become our Night king type figure and i definitely can buy into that so i don't know if that specifically has something to do with bringing down the wall but it could he could have a part in that and him just completely switching from being the guy who was supposed to save everyone to being the guy that lets them all in or maybe he's defeated in his battle to do that or maybe it's bran maybe it is something like the show where he comes back through that allows them to come back through i don't think so i don't like that theory particularly it could be convoluted you know <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah not a fan of that one all right well uh want, should we should we move along to question 23 no that was too quick we've got another 50 minutes to do oh, on that one oh question good point we'll we'll publish some <laughs> additional notes on this to make up for the, yeah, the, the we'll get there eventually you know being so concise okay i guess we can move on to question 23 overall they're actually kind of staying in the same sort of area anyway. So this is from Yuha Alexi Yavanpar. They ask, uh, so they say, in fact, Hodor dies and Stannis will burn Shireen just like on the show, but George has said it will be different in the books. How will it be different though? Sure. So uh, I'll tackle the Shireen bit first. So I think the biggest difference with mm -hmm. the Shireen burning will be the timing and location. We know she's not with Stannis on their march to Winterfell, which how it happened in the show. So unless mm -hmm. George meant this loosely and Shireen will be burned, quote unquote, by Stannis via his proxy of Melisandre or, you know, other Queensmen, it's going to be different right off the bat. I think one thing that will be the same is that Davos won't witness it firsthand. Um, he's obviously not with either Stannis or or Shireen right now, but I just have a really hard time imagining Davos allowing that without throwing his life away to stop it. Yeah, I agree. I, I definitely don't see Davos being involved again, like you said, on that timing i don't think that's happening i could still see him coming across the spot where she was burned later on after he's delivered recon and then i suppose he maybe he goes north to find his shun king and finds out what's been going on but also it's not quite as relevant as it would be in the show because he doesn't have anywhere near the relationship with shireen in the books as he does in the show so that emotional element would be very very different not that he would feel better about this little girl being burnt alive but just because she hasn't taught him to read in this one but still it's not 
not quite the same. It would still be an emotional moment though. It could be the marker to Davos that he has actually backed the wrong horse, that Stannis is done, that Stannis has failed in his ultimate duty or however you want to phrase it. That would obviously be life-changing for Davos, it would be harrowing for him, it would relate back to those intense philosophical conversations and arguments that the two of them had in Storm about Edric, about like what the point of being a king is, what's it all for, it's the old, you know, what is the... I can't remember what the phrase is, but what is a kingdom against the life of one boy, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that would hit Davos like a train, I think. We also, you know, I mean, we mentioned it in a previous question, and it's a big theme in the books of, you know, oath keeping. So obviously, you know, Davos has sworn allegiance to Stannis. Stannis has done terrible things to him. Stannis has kept him from his family for so long. But, uh, you know, mm. could this be a tipping point for him? You know, I mean, he, he's lost so much. Would seeing Stannis turn into this kind of monster who would sacrifice his own kid potentially tip him over the edge and, and make him consider someone new like John or who knows? Mm. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. A, a kind of detail, a difference that could be obviously very different from the show is how involved with the burning Devon Seaworth is. Because we know from Dance that he, this is being Davos's son, obviously, he's pretty taken with Melisandre so far. He's kind of fallen into the ranks of the Red God and the Queen's Men. So I guess there's two options. Either he's like super, super far gone and he helps deliver Shireen to the flames. That would be very, very difficult for us to read. And obviously if Davos finds out about that, that would kind of destroy destroy him as well or Devon comes to his senses at the right moment and maybe he tries to save Shireen or something and only to be killed in the process I'm very very worried about Devon yeah. I think we said that a lot in Scraps and Scrolls maybe he even gets burnt alongside her though I mean to what end I mean that's not good <laughs> Shireen's being burnt for a purpose we assume that would just be extra cruelty to burn Devon as well but it, it could happen yeah. who knows what they're up to how desperate they get yeah absolutely I think also just to keep it with Shireen, obviously location and circumstance are going to be very different from the show, as, as Emily said. There's a chance this happens earlier on in the book than we might guess as a way to buy back John's life, because that's just a, a hell of an emotional baggage to put on John when he's told exactly how he came back. I don't know. That would be just as soul-destroying. Mm -hmm. And also, I think, I guess, Monster is a candidate for that. It, it really could be in the um, for Stannis vibe, depending on Mel's reasoning. It's still destroyed John either way, whether it's Shireen or Monster or both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it could happen early like that. It could also be later after Stannis is defeated at Winterfell, or more likely he's kind of shunned by the North after winning it back for him. You know, it, uh, okay, great, thanks. We've got it from here. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, a third option. We know there's rumors of Stannis's death at some point, so Melisandre might take this literally and you know try to accelerate the burning to get him back. So it might not be John that she's going after, but. Gosh, can I save mm. Stannis? Might not have to wait that long. It might be a long wait. You know, we still don't have a reaction to the pink letter. So we'll we'll see how that all shakes out. Yeah. And one final thing on Shireen before we move on to Hodor. Uh, something I'm pretty sure I've mentioned already on these episodes is, uh, well, it certainly seems to garner a reaction every time I bring it up. But there's the possibility that Shireen is burned while tied to a weirwood tree. So we're actually getting a kind of double crime, a real true insult to the North. Ugh. 
uh, which would, would make sense if Stannis, if it is Stannis who's doing it, and he's, like you say, he has been shunned, he's super pissed, he's like, all right, not only am I going to burn my daughter, I'm also going to take down one of your weirwood trees. You know, it's just him going full Sith Lord kind of thing. He's really gone over to the dark side. And also, we've wondered before about whose POV we could see this burning through, and I always suggest Bran. I think he could be in the weirwood. He could feel the burning of the tree. More importantly, he could feel Shireen's pain and death and her burning. You know, just to really throw us into it and make us all feel truly, truly horrible. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a good shout there. I mean, I, I think we actually might have had a, a listener question kind of tied to that of, you know, who... Yeah, I think Micah brought it up mm-hmm. from from when I tweeted about exactly, it. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Because everyone kind of um, gasped when I originally tweeted Micah, it. Micah, we love you. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, so why don't we move on from one really cheery topic of a child being burned to death mm. to, you know, a poor innocent Hodor dying. We're keeping yeah. it light today. All fireworks today. <laughs> yeah. All right. So as for Hodor dying, you know, I think this is pretty tough to predict. I think, you know, the setting again will be a bit different. I don't think the Game of Thrones set for the cave of Bloodraven is like exactly the same as what we're seeing in the books. The cave of the three-eyed crow is different, um, or at least what we were shown of it. Furthermore, there Mm. isn't a Night King in the book series, so the specific way that Bran is located and besieged is bound to play out a bit differently just uh, just because of that. You know, I have a hard time imagining uh, this cave having like a door or a back door that that Hodor would hold. We're talking pretty abstractly about doors here, if if that's the case. (laughs) So, you know, one possible idea for me is that they flee back to the wall and Hodor falls there holding you know the black gate or uh, other passageway through the wall yeah i agree again uh i i could see there still being some kind of assault on the cave at some point and an escape but if george has said it's going to be different then the only thing that could really change is the location in this brand is going to actually walk hodor and make it his act not hodor's but that would that would be rubbish i think i would kind of doubt that i suspect the true change will be the kind of time travelly element that was in the show and how it all came about that i think that's kind of beyond our guessing scope yeah, I think I, I agree with you that there could potentially be some kind of assault on the cave in an escape because I, we we need some sort of action to drive Bran out of that cave or maybe not even Bran, yeah. but... Uh, I, I think it, it probably will involve Bran, definitely Mira, definitely Hodor. Um, so what is that going to be? You know, otherwise, you know, obviously the Three-Eyed Crow is happy to camp out there for a very, very long time. So what kind of outside force is that going to be? And that, that certainly could and probably will be the others. But again, I don't know that that's exactly where Hodor falls. Yeah, I think it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, they uh, they get in and force him out. I think it could easily be Bran already wants to leave, but he knows as soon as he goes outside, they're all there type thing. So it could be either distraction or like you say, this happens elsewhere. Your wall idea, that seems pretty on point. You mentioned the Black Gate. That would definitely make sense, seeing as that's where they came through. They know that they can get Bran through there. I don't think they're going to go off trying any of the other castles. And assumedly, that's also the closest geographically as well. So that definitely makes sense that they they go there and i suppose actually our two answers maybe combine because maybe bran does see what happens to shireen burning at the night fort maybe that's his hook he wants to get down there and stop it or see what's going on or whatever maybe he runs into angry disillusioned stannis a stannis who like we say might link up with the ovens in some way and that's how that all kicks off i can't say i've ever given much thought to stannis and bran being together because they seem like complete opposite ends of the plot spectrum 
Well, it could be more about the burning to bring back John, if that's how it goes down. And, and yeah. Bran might have feelings about his half-brother slash probably cousin, uh, you know, coming back in yeah, that way. He, yeah, if he sees John's body or something like that, yeah. You know, if, if, if he sees John's body or if he sees John alive again and he already has the information we expect is coming about um, R plus L equals J, you know, maybe that's the driving point. And we also don't know Blood Raven's part in all this. I don't think he's going to be going as quick as he does in the show. I think he's around to stay a bit more. Mm-hmm. So he's obviously going to be either pushing Bran in a certain direction or maybe Bran is trying to escape him. Maybe he realizes what he's up to and that's why he needs to get out of the cave. It could be either one. We're, sure. we're completely guessing at this point. I just want to hark back to uh, what, what Grizzly said in uh, answering one of our earlier questions that this could have something to do with the river and exiting that way. So um, we, we may see something like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's a nice All one. All right. Cool. On to question 24. Uh, this is one of yours as well, and I really love this one. Mm. Um, so will there be an actual attempt to crown Theon? Yeah, this is another interesting part to me and included this time because it does link with Scraps and Scrolls for Theon, which will be out by the time you're listening to this. So before we start, let's give you a reminder of what the Theon latecomer idea slash history is. I'm sure you'll remember as we go. As Triss Botley helpfully tells us during A Dance with Dragons, back in the Age of Heroes, it was the Grey Irons who ruled the Iron Islands. And one such king, Urgon III, he died at some point, meaning there had to be a king's moot, as was the style at the time. Now, Urgon, he had a bunch of sons who all wanted to be king, but the eldest of them, Torgon, was off raving and pillaging along the Mander, as the Ironborn tend to do. His brothers decided not to wait or get word to him because it would only mean another competitor, so they fast-tracked it. They said, okay, let's get going. Before he comes back, there's one less person we've got to compete against. What they weren't expecting was that Urthon Goodbrother IV was going to come along, kill all of them, and then wing the king's boot himself. But here's the important bit. Torgon did come back eventually, and when he did, he said... No, 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 that king's moot was invalid because I wasn't here to make my claim. And the most important thing about this was that everyone agreed with him, all the priests and the small folk and even Urifon's own men. Hence, Torgon became king instead. So, as you've probably worked out by now, the idea is that Asher heard this from Triss and thought, Aha! Hang on, Theon wasn't present at the King's Moot because he's a massive afterthought and everyone figured he was either dead or not coming back. But if she could get her hands on him and bring him home to the Iron Islands, then she could finally challenge Euron's rule and she could kind of set everything right again because when we met her in dance, everything had gone wrong, she didn't know what to do with herself, and this was her one idea. And, well, wouldn't you know it, she happens to run right into Theon in the middle of a snowstorm at the end of dance, hence the Fion latecomer idea. So Emily, give us your initial thoughts. All right. Well, I think you bring up some good points and uh, I hate to pivot away from that immediately, but I actually wonder if there's a potential that this is a bit of a red herring. You know, we see Asha dwell on the idea of Theon latecomer, but she actually misses another equally important part of the tale. So I'm going to read a little bit of the text here. Mm-hmm. Torgon Grey Iron was the king's eldest son, but the king was old and Torgon restless, and so it happened when his father died, he was raiding along the Mander and from his stronghold on Greyshield. His brothers sent no word to him, but instead quickly called a king's moot, thinking that one of them would be chosen to wear the driftwood crown. But the captains and kings chose Urgon Goodbrother to rule instead. The first thing the new king did was command that all the sons of the old king be put to death, and so they were. After that, men called him Bad Brother, and though in truth, they'd be no kin of his. 
So I think it's possible that potentially this is also meant to foreshadow Euron's cruelty, king slaying, and I'm really hoping his eventual downfall. Yeah, fingers crossed. We got enough in that Forsaken chapter of him definitely being up for the kin slaying and the cruelty, so that makes sense. Now, I personally think that Theon dies at Winterfell or in the north or at least he should anyway i think that's where his heart lies that's where all his themes wrap up best and that might be in justice or in service of the starks but i think that's where it should happen yeah i agree with this uh if theon survives stannis or a potential reunion with either ramsay yikes or john uh then there's a chance he could go south again but i think that the show actually had something right in theon dying at Winterfell. Uh, Whether he'll die redeemed or identifying with the Starks again, we shall see. Yeah, I agree. I think that's where it should happen. But then that makes me ask, okay, well, why has this idea come up in general then if if nothing's going to come of it? I suppose we could ask, will Asha use it as reasoning to make Euron's crowning invalid, even if she can't actually get Theon back to the Iron Islands? Uh, I mean, I wonder if she's going to need much help by the time Euron's done. Uh, Again, as we discussed in the Forsaken chapter, he's clearly not bothered about how the Ironborn fare, so they might already be sick of him. Asha might not need to give them that big of a push to get rid of their own king. Right. He he had his bribes up front to make sure that the ties were severed between Victorian and Asha. But, you know, I mean, everything that he does after that is very self-serving. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Then again, as much as I think it would be better for Theon to either die in front of the heart tree or simply remain up north, I suppose the more I think about it, I can see an avenue to this happening. Something I didn't discuss in that recent Theon episode, because I wanted to save it uh, for this question, is, okay, we understand Ash's motivation to do this because she wants to be able to go home and she knows how bad Euron is. And if by some miracle Aeron survives this long, then you could see him buying into it as well i mean in his preview chapter he goes through his available candidates and he dismisses both victorian and asher but he doesn't get to Fion, so perhaps there's a little bit of a hint some foreshadowing there but what i've actually started thinking is what if this is something that blood raven is also hoping for or manipulating towards that Theon 1 chapter ends with the Ravens shouting about Theon in the tree, properly, properly shouting. And in that episode, if you've listened to it by now, we discussed the possibility of it being Bran in those Ravens and whether he was endorsing the choice for Theon to die before the heart tree or was he warning against it. We did also consider whether it was Blood Raven, but we didn't really discuss why. It's because we aren't really sure of how aware of each other Euron and Blood Raven are right now, but it's a good bet this pretty strongly. So Blood Raven, perhaps more than anyone, could understand just how dangerous his former or slash rogue apprentice is. Therefore, he might want to chip away at his power base any way that he can, and the Fion Latecomer idea achieves that. We know from multiple examples in the series that a king who loses his home turf is screwed. Mm -hmm. A king announces invalid is even even worse shape. So whether this would actually stop Euron or not, that's a different question. But it definitely makes sense that Blood Raven would want to stop him. So if that's all possible, then maybe George has set all that up so that we will see it coming. But I maintain his place is in the north, dead or alive. Yeah, yeah, I would. I still agree with that. I think there are there's potential for this, but I think it doesn't mesh with the themes as well as you know Theon confronting his the stark part of his identity and and redeeming himself there. 
Yeah, that's the bit I'm most hungry for. But I will add some more uh, flame to this <laughs> idea from that recent preview chapter, Fim Fion, because in that, Fion, he perfectly pictures Euron's black eye, which it suggests there is going to be some kind of connection between the two, but that could easily happen in the north. We've just said it in that last question. Euron can be heading north. It doesn't mean Fion has to go south. Asher doesn't have any pull with Stannis right now. The king definitely wants Fion dead, so it seems pretty hard to picture how this is going to happen. And Asher herself seems to have accepted that Fionn's going to die. But if these ravens get louder and louder and really kick up a fuss by the weirwood tree, maybe Asher takes a chance. Maybe she makes her pitch again to uh, to Stannis. And I suppose it's possible that Dagmar Cleftjaw finally returns to the story and he's how they get back to the Iron Islands. They enact this latecomer idea. And then maybe Fionn still comes back north to surface Starks and maybe we hit both sides of the argument. But I think if we're picking one, we're all picking the north if there's only time for the one. Yeah, yep. I agree. I, I, and that's that's why I brought up what I did about the red herring. I mean, one, George loves those, and and two, I think you know there's yeah, there's reason that this was included. True. And so if Theon does die in the North, what is that reason? And and it's probably foreshadowing for Euron. I agree. Okay, on to question twenty five then. Which POV characters are you most concerned about surviving wins? And this is another one that comes from multiple people. Emily, you're one of them again. I am. James P, another. Willard the Slumbery and several others, I believe. So a popular question, a big question. Yeah, absolutely. So let me start by just recapping the current state of things here. The list of POVs has grown from book to book. And, you know, with the story winding down in, in you know, two more books, we think we're probably going to lose a few. So far, we've lost two Starks, a Martell, and, you know, someone else close to the Dorne storyline, uh, not counting the, <laughs> not counting the the prologues and epilogues, of course. Um, oh, yeah, that'll take yeah, a day. Right. Um, you know, so just a, a brief recap, we've got, you know, 20 currently living POVs, uh, We've got 11 who have died, but only four are from the main story. So those four were Ned, Catelyn, Aerys Oakheart, and Quentin. Yeah, uh, I think for this it's going to probably be a, a feast or famine situation. It, it really depends how far the book gets. Like we said earlier, like if the wall is down and they're all coming south, or if Daenerys makes it over to Westeros in this book, then we could be seeing a whole bunch, but it might not get that far, so we might only have maybe one or two. But it really does depend. The difficulty comes in that of everything we're discussing here or in the preview chapters, we're still really focused on the beginning of the book. As much as we might do our guess we've got no idea what the end of the book will bring and you can look at any of the previous five really but consider especially like the beginning of storm or the beginning of dance there's no way you can look at those first bunch of chapters and predict how either of those books are going to end up and this one's probably going to be even bigger than those and have even bigger plot points so it's even harder for us to guess yeah absolutely obviously you know we're expecting that prologue pov to die as we mentioned yeah uh, do you guys want us to do that whole hour again we could you know just go just hit the rewind Wine yeah, I, we're not, there's stuff I haven't got we're to. Not gonna, we're not going to do round two. Send me back to the Riverlands. Right. So what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I agree. Definitely the prologue character. They're a goner, whoever it is. But for the other POVs, well, Aaron, he's our closest certainty because he does not look in a good way at the end of The Forsaken. As we've just mentioned, he could be part of this latecomer idea. So maybe he sticks around long enough for that, but he's not essential to it. It could easily happen without him. So I don't think that's anything to uh, to bet on. And Asher and Fionn could even use him as a martyr if he does die to rally up his small folk and his, uh, his priests. So no. 
not good news, not looking good for Aaron, I don't think. Correct. You know, actually, we we already answered a question about who we think the first POV character to die was. Yeah. And my answer to that was Aaron. Uh, so mm. I won't beat that to death. But, you know, we have a lot of Greyjoy point of view characters right now. So, you know, Aaron is, is probably on the chopping block. But there's also a strong possibility we lose another Greyjoy and wins, uh, be it Theon or Victorian, maybe even Asha. But I, I kind of doubt that. She's my my dark horse of the, of the three. So... Oh yeah, I definitely hope uh, not. Love a bit of Asher. Victorian, I think, yeah, he's not he's a strong candidate to not survive the book. I mean, he's already got a cursed hand that's like rotting or burning away, so that's not good news. But he's also about to enter a battle. I think we all agree he'll probably survive that, but then he's probably gonna do unknowingly do some kind of dirty work for Euron, he'll get the dragon or he'll get Danny or something like that. He'll think he's got the upper hand, he'll think, haha, I've beaten Euron, then he'll come back and find he's actually wrong about that as well and maybe Euron keeps him alive just to torture him that sounds like Euron or maybe he kills him that sounds like Euron as well yeah we actually covered him as a potential early POV death also along those lines Mm -hmm. Ario Hota yeah definitely yeah yeah we don't have to have a lot of pov deaths but again it might be george wanting to make that mark i mean we could get some we could get some quite small arcs uh, they don't necessarily have to become at the beginning they don't necessarily have to all come at the end all at once but they could they could come and this will be george saying that not all of these people are going to survive as much as you might like them right which will obviously be quite different from like as you say quite different from the first five yeah i mean i i i think we're going to get some pov deaths here 20 is a lot mm. you know obviously he yeah. had to split uh, you know, the the fourth book into four and five in order to make room for all of them. So I could see him being very ready to rid himself of a few of these characters. So, you know, aside from the paring down of the number of Greyjoys, we also want to look for POVs that might overlap or not offer anything unique in existing locations. So in Marine, there's a lot going on. We could lose Barristan, Victarion, Tyrion, or Daenerys and still have decent coverage of that area. Um, I think you probably agree with me here, but I don't see Tyrion or Danny going down in this book. They're you know they're one of no. the they're two of the big three characters. Oh, the Triforce. Um, you know we've already killed off John, although though we expect him to come back. So I just don't think it's going to be them. So you know if we're picking in that location, we've we've talked about Victorian, but but Barristan's another option. And you make a good point about you know he doesn't he's not going to need twenty at some point like these people are however slowly they're moving back towards each other he might have needed 20 for that split book but that's not going to be the case for much longer so he's got a bit of room to kind of wield his knife so to speak Absolutely. Um, you know, I also think that John Connington is very unlikely to survive the series and, and he could be another option to die in wins. Uh, though if that happens, I think it's going to have to be late book given one, the progression of his grayscale and two, you know, his, he's got a unique perspective. I think even though he and Arian are coming together soon here, I don't think there's any guarantee that they're going to stay um, in the same location. And, and I think we're probably going to need both of those POVs for a little while. Yeah, that's another one I agree with. I mean, if anything he's the one we we definitely know is going to die at some point but obviously it's a question of when i could see it being within wins as well and maybe it's as a result of Aegon's campaign collapsing either due to euron or danny come over uh, if that's true then i suppose we have to be worried about Ariane's fate as well because we figure she's going to be in there around somewhere if that happens and it really does give that final blow to duran i mean imagine that letter after he's already learned about quentin <sighs> Uh, but it is 
you could see it stretching to dream as well it really depends on which side of the fence you come down on in terms of how far his campaign's going to get and when Daenerys comes over I think I suppose Cersei could also be involved in that if she's still hanging around but I think we're we probably all expect her to make dream mm-hmm. in general there's still Brienne for me I mentioned a couple of episodes ago I think it was on the first bunch of questions I just couldn't quite see what a wind arc looks like for Brienne and that that's still true I don't think George would go that far unless there's something major happening but it's just possible because I can't see how far she's what she's actually going to get up to yeah honestly pains me to say this but I think that that is a real possibility too you know so much hinges on what happens immediately with her Jamie and Stoneheart I think you know we've we've Mm. gone through theories for how both Jamie and Brienne could walk away from that and I think both are still possible but at the same time it's George R. R. Martin like uh, you know (laughs) Uh, yeah, I think that, that there's a strong possibility that, you know, uh, that as much as they could survive, they're equally likely for, for one or both of them not to survive. I, you know, the stakes need to feel real. And yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but it, it makes sense. In keeping with what you said about over in uh, Marine and the amount of POVs we need there, that's the same. At the moment, it's not the same at the wall because we don't have many there. But I think by the end of the book, that will change. We'll probably have more than we need there, especially once the battle is done. That could take a few away as well. You mentioned Barristan. Yeah, he's away from me. Davos is the same as well. You know, Once he's done his bit, once he's got Recon over, or once he's had this big hoo-ha with Stannis about <laughs> philosophy and that he might just have no more use especially if he does find himself kingless although yes we did you mentioned earlier maybe he does end up with john that'd be cool i'd prefer that to him dying certainly but it doesn't mean i'm not worried about him i think maybe what we should do is come up with our our top five povs we think are in the most danger and this is something everyone listening you can send in as well your top five or your top three if especially if they're different to ours these are mine in no particular order i mean we've just gone through them there but i think i would pick aaron Fionn, Victorian, just to get that whole family out of the way almost. John Connington, and then maybe Aereo Hotel. That fifth spot's pretty hard. Yeah, I think I think five is hard. I mean, I think if we see five POVs die, you know, we're going to have an epilogue and a prologue in there as well, I think. Yeah, um, or we'll see. For me, I, I agree with Aaron, Theon, John Connington, Victorian. You know, um, I don't I don't know if that will necessarily lose three Greyjoys in one book. We'll see. Yeah, if harsh. I had to swap a few out, I would swap one of the Greyjoys and Ario out for, you know, again, pains me to say it, but Brienne, I guess you could make the case for Jamie, but I just think he's got things to do with Cersei. And I think there's yeah. this, all this, there's the Valencar prophecy. There's the whole idea that they're supposed to die together. You know, there's, there's so much going on there that I, I don't, I think if it's going to be one or the other, it's going to be Brienne. And then I'm just going to throw a dark horse in that we haven't even talked about at all that just cause I, you know, I want to see if there's more women on the list and, you know, maybe we see uh, Melisandre go down at this one. We, you know, we, we think that bad things are going to happen to Stannis and she is like his right hand woman. Mm. Or if that 800 foot wall collapses and she, standing too close to it like it could just be a rocks fall situation so um if you're pressing me to have a different list than the one you submitted then those are those are my choices yeah that's a good good one to add in in there Masandra. i mean it's definitely enough danger even immediately at castle black let alone the rest of the book there's more than enough for her to be getting on with so that's a good choice but yes everyone make sure you're sending in your five or your three or however many you'd like yes. we'd like to hear yours 
Absolutely. All right. Question 26. Uh, this one comes from our good friend Micah. Micah says, uh, Winds looks to be where George will be taking the theme of vengeance to the extreme, from Lady Stoneheart to Dorne to Cersei at the High Sparrow. What are some likely moments of vengeance you're looking forward to, whether it be for character satisfaction or the emotional highs? This is a great question, but it's also a tough question. It's definitely one of those where five minutes after we're finished, I know I'm going to think of a bunch more answers that are probably better than the ones I have. And I'll be thinking, ah, oh, should have said that one, should have said that one. I bet if I went back into the scraps and scrolls notes, I'd find a bunch as well. But I have come up with a little list. I'm not going to dive too far into each of them. But uh, what I actually did is went back into the Dance of Dragons appendix and just read through the list and was like, oh yeah, they could want vengeance. Oh yeah, they could want <laughs> vengeance. But I think it's a it's a great question anyway, because I think every question we've had today, probably every question we get, vengeance always comes up in some form because it is such a massive, massive piece of this book. So that's great for Micah to identify that. So anyway, this little list. Uh, Lady Dustin, she still wants vengeance in some way, both against the Starks. She's not happy with the Boltons entirely either, so she could go either way. Don't know what she's going to get to Jorah versus Dario it doesn't have to be justified vengeance remember we can just have Jorah turning back up he's pissed he's been made a slave he's been branded then you meet the girl you likes new boyfriend and uh, you're not very happy to meet him mm-hmm. Rolly Duckfield is coming west he's got his beef with I can't remember which family it is now but someone in the reach and they mistreated him curse me for not being able to remember the name but he might want to go after them and uh, kind of support him because that guy was a dick uh, Jerris Drinkwater he might unfairly do something to mess up Danny's plans because he blames her again unfairly for Quentin's death Daenerys while we're talking about her I'll, I'll take her versus all of the Yunkish just bring the dragons back bring Drogon light him up uh, yeah be happy, pretty happy with that just to change scenes entirely 1-1 one, one, up at the wall uh, he's pretty ahead of the game in terms of vengeance because he's already smashed up Sir Patrick but I don't mind if he takes his annoyance out on some other Queen's men as well speaking of Bowen Marsh definitely yep John or whoever else but I hope he gets what's coming to him Marjorie and Cersei you can take your pick. It could be Marjorie taking out on Cersei. It could be the other way round. We spoke about it earlier. Every Riverlord versus the Freys, especially the Malisters <laughs> and Blackwoods, but I think any of them can come and uh, take their vengeance. Let me give you a few more. We've got, you know, Brienne, if anything happens to Podrick. I think, you know, same thing if something worse happens to Jamie. She's grown a bit attached to him. Uh, she's holding his sword, etc. Uh, Mance. But to who? You know, I mean, we don't know as much as we'd like about Mance's backstory, but, you know, he's clearly got motives here. If you believe certain theories about the pink letter, there's plenty going on. I think you'll agree with me here, but like everything related to Arya's storyline is about mm-hmm. vengeance, you know, um, her list. Uh, Uh, her training, everything. So I think we're going to see some of that accelerate as she heads back west. Sand snakes are very likely as well. You know, this could be towards Cersei's children. You know, Tom and Marcella, they're both left. You know, there's there's emotional highs there. We've got Asha versus Clayton. Yes, please. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) you know, of course, Tyrion is a huge one. And I know you have uh, some thoughts on that. Yeah, I'm not. Maybe we might have to wait for Dream for this one. But he's definitely still very eager for vengeance. And even though Penny's done her best to kind of bring him back to the light side, he's not ever going to get completely there. He wants vengeance against Cersei. He's still actually, even though he doesn't focus on it too much, he's still spreading that out to Jaime and the rest of his family in general. He just wants to come back to Westeros. He wants to poo 
all the the court and the small folk wrong uh, i think him and the mountain clans of the Vale. i, I think they're going to link up back together and cause some havoc so that's uh, that's some just some like quick choices for you there again there'll be plenty more that i'll think of 10 minutes later but this is another good one that everyone can message in with because i think this is almost an endless question to yeah, be honest i mean i think uh this is one i just thought of while we were talking but i think it's just crazy that uh you know clegane versus clegane the clegane bowl hasn't even yeah. come up you know sure. um maybe that's because we're expecting that to happen in a dream of spring i don't know but you know that that certainly would make the list for me and we talk about this quite a bit here on the aisle you've heard it before but i'm really personally looking forward to some vengeance served to peter fucking baelish we've got two books to go uh, i believe there's more to sansa's arc than just taking him down so i could expect to see something on that front here just because you know uh, i think he's an obstacle in her path and she's gonna have to clear that before she can ultimately move on to the other things she wants to achieve yeah, I, th- I suspect that we begin to see the crumbling of Littlefinger's little empire. Uh, I think that probably begins sooner rather than later. The whole thing is kind of built on matchsticks and luck anyway. Uh, and I think George has actually mentioned that his technical rule of the Riverlands is going to be challenged. So that could that could come up pretty quickly, especially if the other stuff we've been discussing today takes place early on as well. We've also discussed before there's things that could trip him up in the veil if the tourney goes wrong or not as he'd like or... If, uh, sweet robin makes a nuisance of himself i still personally like the idea of his final downfall the final vengeance coming up in the north with sansa on ned's home turf where you know he doesn't know how to operate amongst honor just as ned kind of struggled with the opposite in king's landing but as for how it literally happens how that vengeance is physically handed out to him I don't mind how, as long as it's slow and painful. Very, very painful, please. Uh, I could read a good three or four chapters that is purely that. Just (laughs) Peter Baelish dying. I know you could. Four chapters, five chapters. Give me that. Now, we've got a buddy over on the Radio Westeros Discord server who is a big Baelish fan in terms of him being a character, so I think he would disagree with you there. But I think he does agree with us both that, you know, we see Littlefinger going down for sure. now on to another candidate and I, we've talked about him a lot so i won't be i'll be as brief as i can here but poor poor blackfish you know he's had such a rough storyline with his brothers and nieces perishing as well as many great nieces and nephews at least he thinks so i know we know a few of them are still actually around edmure is in dire straits as we went into great detail on he's really the last bastion of hope for house tully and so i so want something good to happen for him i want him to get that vengeance so as far as the vengeance goes I'm looking squarely at House Frey for this. Yeah, I think if we're if we're picking one almost certain vengeance to be enacted, other than Aya, I think we all agree she's going to be doing some more vengeance on top of what she did in, in Mercy. It's probably House Frey and this kind of second Red Wedding idea, the retaking of River Run, the stuff we've already talked about in the prologue. There's plenty of that, and I will take it all as much Frey stuff as possible, please, in terms of vengeance. And there's death. so many of them that it really can be spread around. You know, Arya can get her piece. Yeah. Uh, Blackfish can get his. You know, other Riverlords can jump in there as well. Um, you know, even Frey on Frey vengeance is certainly going to happen if if Walder goes down. So yeah, absolutely. I know even we're even gonna see a form of it up in the north if they will go diving into that frozen pond. Oh, yeah. <laughs> same kind of vengeance up there as well. 
Yeah, we could just go through each Frey member and choose how we'd like them to die. Yeah, just tweet that at us, please. I want to (laughs) know. Yeah, that could be a long thread. Instead, we'll move to question 27, which is coming from a patron of ours, Willard the Slumber, who's given us lots of different questions, and this is a good one. He asks, is Loris really gravely injured slash what happened at Dragonstone? Big question. Wow, this is a hard one. So thank you, Willard. I think this is definitely an open mystery. You know, I think that Cersei having all the facts on this is very unlikely. One huge thing to keep in mind when reading anything A Song of Ice and Fire is the idea of an unreliable narrator. And that actually extends past POV characters here, although we know Cersei is extremely unreliable. Um, Cersei hears of Loras's injuries from Orion Waters. And well, we've covered him for a bit, but he's basically the definition of an unreliable narrator. Yeah, he's shit at nicknames and he's also not a good uh, narrator. Now, I'm going to say right from the beginning, I think I found this the hardest question of the day to actually answer. Not the not the 10 odd pages I put on for the prologue, but this one, because this is, like you say, really open mystery. Uh, in terms of Cersei, yes, she is one of the worst if you want some credible information about King's Landing uh, at that time. Not only because she picks shoddy information sources like Orane Waters or her other yes-men that she gathers around her, but because she's awful, awful predicting trouble that hasn't happened yet. She's got no foresight at all. Something needs to be stood right in front of her inches away until she realises it's an issue. Unless, ironically, it's Tyrion, who she blames for everything. She thinks that's all around her. (laughs) Worse still, she's too confident in her own ability, as we saw during feasts. By a country mile, she is. So with the news of Loras being mortally wounded and an assault she allowed him to go on, she considers herself a genius for getting him out of the way and thus weakening the Tyrells and allowing her the easy lane to Marjorie. So I think the lesson here is do not ask her what's happened because she's no use to us for this question. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's pretty easy for someone to lie to her about something that happened in battle because she has no experience with it, no interest Mm, in it. You know, uh, back in the Battle of the Blackwater, she's just sitting around drinking wine and, you know, has her contingency (laughs) plan for, you know, do I kill myself or do I offer myself up to them? She's, yeah, you know, they could lie their asses off to her about what happened and she'd be like, oh, yeah, that sounds like war. That totally makes sense uh, because it's what I want to hear. As far as what happened on Dragonstone, well, some say it's hard to believe that Roland Storm, who idolizes the warrior, would pass up the chance at single combat like they're told he did. But Loras also has quite the reputation in the realm, so it's possible that Roland could have been talked out of the idea. You know, there's some plausibility to there, but we're not sure. You know, we also know that Stannis left Dragonstone fairly lightly held. Could his remaining forces really do the kind of damage that Orain describes to Cersei? Yeah, I I would say it is uh, possible for that to happen. I mean, I think the Roland Storm question is really, uh, that's a good one to consider. The problem with it is, is the same problem we have with this question in general. You could easily question the validity of it, of whether it happened, but you can't really work out why it might not have happened or might have happened. The reasoning is the hard part to get around here. But as for this, what you're talking about, the forces of them actually doing this damage, well, given the kind of defences that Dragonstone has, it is a citadel 
Citadel after all, it's kind of purpose built. I'd say it is definitely possible. Likely is a different question. It really depends on how foolish Loras was. He he would have had to put himself in some very, very obviously risky situations, but then there is the story of him being over eager to get this done so he can get back and help the Reach. So, I mean, that all does connect. That does make sure. sense. Sure. I mean, he was eager for glory way back when Ned was looking for someone to go track down Gregor Clegane. Yeah, yeah that's a good um, point. Yeah. So I would agree that's with true. that. And, you know, I mean, I think he's clever. I think he's he's got some skill, but, you know, does that cleverness, the kind of cleverness we've seen is, you know, the tricks with the horses and um, how to kind of outfox someone, not necessarily decisions you're making in the heat of battle, which, he, you know, is fairly untested in outside of tourneys. So uh, we'll mm. see. You know, regarding Dragonstone, we know that Kevin Lannister was skeptical that the Tyrells, quote, found nothing useful on Dragonstone. Uh, but presumably Stannis had a lot of time in that castle over the years to search for its secrets and, you know, uh, would have thought to take things va- that he found valuable with him, I hope. I think there's, again, we keep talking about thin evidence here, so... Yeah, that's tough. We just don't know how bothered by that kind of stuff Stannis would have been, but then he was also pretty poor, so you would have thought he would have bothered to have a look, but I don't know. I'm pretty suspicious about this Dragonstone treasure hunt, purely because of how adamant Mace was in that dance epilogue, that they absolutely weren't up to anything, and they definitely hadn't found anything. I think it's uh, maybe the Mace doth protest too much, I think. Then again, it would definitely be a bit of a turn-up if the Tyrells were looking for anything mystical, like dragon's eggs, for example. Certainly, they've given no indication of leaning that way so far, but they're also planners, they're forward thinkers, so maybe they buy into these stories about Daenerys and figure that, hey, we need to get on some equal footing just in case it turns out to be true, or just in case she does come west, let's get ahead of everyone else who's dismissing that so far. Plus, uh, you know, a dragon, pretty helpful anyway, so it wouldn't hurt, would it? Then we could really get rid of the Lannisters. I mean, Mace is an ambitious guy, uh, he might not mind a bit of a sniffer, Around at Dragonstone. I think, you know, it kind of comes down to how much time they had. Uh, you know, mm. I, I think I think they certainly were looking for a dragon's egg. They would love to find one. I, I find it hard to believe that they'd find something like that in, you know, what, maybe at most a couple of weeks when Stannis had years and years and years in the castle. Uh, but I also, but I think there's plenty of other treasure that was left behind. Stannis is a practical guy. So I think, you know, he would have taken what he found valuable, but that might not equate to what the Tyrells found valuable and that even like literally could just equate to chests of gold we don't know yes i guess like in theory stannis was always supposed to come back like he hadn't abandoned it so to speak he was in theory going up to conquer the north and one day would be back so they could still think there's still stuff worth uh, you know, having a look around. It might simply be that the Tyrells know they beat the Lannisters in pretty much every column except total wealth, and Dragonstone was the home of a royal dynasty for centuries. So there's probably, you know, at least some stuff left over. Maybe they just really wanted a Valerian steel sword, and they figured maybe one of those is hidden in there. I don't think any of that is motivation enough to send Loras over in the first place. Again, like you say, maybe the Dragon Eggs, if they do buy that story, but maybe it's just of a, a happy byproducts like while you're over there you might as well have a look and in the meantime we can plan whatever plan we're using we can lull everyone into a false sense of security or whatever else they're up to but the reply to that would be you know is this really a priority for the tyrells right now dragon's egg or gold i mean they've got their homeland being invaded they're still wrestling for control of king's landing why would they use loris to go hunting right now when there's much bigger needs going on 
Yeah, yep, I would agree with that. I mean, the question that we're dancing around here is the theory goes that he's not actually dying, that either Orain was lying or misinformed or whatever it is, that the Tyrells were up to something else, but then the question is, well, what? I mean, I've always quite liked the idea that he just never went to Dragonstone and went south straight away, even if the, the stories that have come back go against that, but it'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he was eager to help Ned, but the, his motivations were so different back then, and I think, why would he be eager to help Cersei and give her exactly what she wants? You know, I think it's pretty easy to give her lip service there, but, you know, whether he follows through, mm, different story. Overall, I think it would be cool if Loras has survived. I like Loras. I want him to get back in the story. There's several things that could happen later on. We could see him fighting Gregor again. You just mentioned their their rivalry from the, from the beginning of Game of Thrones. I don't think that's coming in any official capacity or anything like that, but it could happen much later on. I know it comes up often, but I don't think Loras is going to be part of either trial. Either. Not to say there couldn't be more trials in the future, but I, I don't think that's happening. We already know that Marjorie's is probably wrapped up with an innocent verdict thanks to Ariane's preview chapter because that tells us that an army is coming down from King's Landing to retake Storm's End. Mace insisted he wouldn't march until his daughter is free so that's an assumption but it's a likely one I think that was Brendan B. Fisher originally came across that point and he's normally right Mm -hmm. don't tell him but he is (laughs) so uh, that makes sense uh so i wonder maybe loris maybe he was injured but maybe just not to the extent that was advertised it would be really interesting to me if loris tyrell cool new kid on the block with all the looks all the skills the the guy that we have already met maybe he's actually been burned with oil and his appearance has completely changed and now he comes back and he sticks out like a sore thumb he's not one of the good looking tyrells anymore he's lost that golden boy image there would be a very slight connection back to Sandor as well they had a a bit of a moment in the hands tourney and it would continue the mirroring that we see of houses Tyrell and Lannister you've got your Marjorie and Cersei you've got your Willis and Tyrion there's comparisons between those pairs and obviously we've compared Jaime and Loras a lot because they're super super similar so I wonder if Loras's loss slash injury just happens to him at a much younger age than Jamie's did when he lost his hand. So I'd, I think that'd be really interesting to explore that, how that would change him, how it'd be welcomed back, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hoping for Loras to pull through as well for a lot of the reasons you mentioned, but uh, it's Pride Month right now, so I just want to say I would really love to, you know, eschew the, the barrier gaze trope here. I really would like Loras to stick mm, around. That's a very good point. I do think that it was likely that if he went to Dragonstone, he was injured in some way. You know, now that we've had the dance epilogue and we've seen that Kevin also thinks he's injured. So Kevin, a little more reliable than Cersei in terms of, you know, the information that he will <laughs> trust and take in. Um, you know, I mean, the way that Orain describes the whole thing to Cersei is just laughable. It's like, I'm just going to come up with like the most fantastical, ridiculous description. Oh yeah, he's covered in sores and burned with oil. You know, um, Kevin might see through that a bit more, but still, you know, have enough information to trust that he was injured. You know, sailors have come back from Dragonstone now, so unless they they pulled the old, you know, switch the armor trick again, like they did at the Blackwater, though I don't really know why they'd do that. Uh, Loras yeah. probably was injured, uh, but maybe isn't dying. 
Yeah, that's what I'm hoping, but maybe that's just my own personal bias showing through because, like I say, uh, I think like you, I would like him to come back. I'd like him to make an appearance and still be an important character. I also just really want Dragonstone to be important as well, so I I do buy into that idea of him looking around because I kind of want him to find something. Um, I guess there's a possibility of him just holding it for House Tyrell right now, ready to be unveiled as needed, like if they want a power base on this coast as well. Again, it's the same question of like really would they make that a priority at this point but what it could lead to down further on down the line is if he's staying there he could be like the first point of contact when danny arrives if dragonstone is where she lands which would definitely make sense that she chooses that spot he could cede the castle to her immediately which would mirror what the Tyrells did at Highgarden when Aegon I came knocking. He could be, uh, the Tyrells could be Danny's first proper big ally in Westeros. That could be a reignition for House Tyrell. If they do lose Mace at Storm's End, if the Reach goes to Euron or some of it anyway, or if the Reach or some of it goes to Randall, if he betrays them and Aegon takes their land, if they lose their place in King's Landing thanks to Aegon, they could be, you know, really down on the low, they've lost everything, and then Loras gives them a jump start because he gets them in with the the new queen new power so that would be pretty cool i'd like to see that like that i think you know also uh, i think maybe the the people who would disagree with us here might say something like well you know won't daenerys who's potentially a little on the paranoid side worry about trusting someone who's thrown their support behind a bunch of people but you have to remember that like she probably doesn't have all the facts about that you know barristan has been gone from westeros for a while also, you know, a little less concerned about the Tyrells compared to, you know, I mean, she she hates the Starks. She hates the Baratheons. She, yeah. you know, she's got enemies that, but they're kind of outdated and they're all kind of the old enemies from, from Robert's Rebellion. So she, she may yeah, not be eyeing them as much as she should be as, you know, potential to double cross. But then Barristan can tell her, if she doesn't know already, you know, the Tyrells are one of the ones that actually did stick with Ares. I mean, however much that's worse, they were Targaryen uh, loyalists. Uh, that will matter for something. Again, all different people by now and very, very different situation, but better than running into one of your enemies first first thing when you get there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think it was in Cersei's feast chapter it might have been one of the dance ones but when she's been taken prisoner and she's being escorted by the scepters uh, she, so she's asking for news she wants to know what's going on she asks about Marjorie at some point and one of the scepters says such and such about Marjorie and then says oh and her brother and then the other scepter tells her no be quiet don't tell her about the brother yet so yeah I'm what is that is that something about Loras or is it someone else yeah I mean that brothers? could be George just poking fun at us here it could be one of the others I yeah, mean the others he knows what he's the others doing. don't have the other brothers don't have too much going on that we're aware of but I mean it could be yeah. the perfect time to say oh we're about to tell you something about Willis but uh you know so so we'll see I think you know we both are are a little stumped on this one so um good job Willard for sending a great question I think, you know, yeah. we both really want Loras to stick around and be up to something, but how, why, what? Uh, we, we've covered some possibilities here, but I think we just have to wait and see. Yeah, th- this could easily turn out to just be one of those instances where the fandom has run away of itself and kind of filled in a gap that's not really there. Like, like I said, it's very easy to imagine that Loras is pulling a fast one, or the Tyrells are, but then when you ask why and what it might actually turn out to be for, uh, it gets a lot harder. Then again, George is a master. He could easily fill in a really great plot or theory or whatever else to make it all work. We'll just have to wait to find out for this one. Yeah. 
Absolutely. All right. On to question 28. Not too many more to go. Also curious from the hedge knight, he says, also curious, do you think that we will get the R plus L equals J reveal in wins? And if so, how do you guys see that happening? Well, I'm going to put my hands up here and I'll admit that R plus L equals J is just not something I give a lot of time to thinking about. I suppose that's because it's just so settled in my mind and confirmed and I'm like not thinking about it a lot. But also, as we go, I just become less and less convinced about its actual impact on the story. I, I think John is tied so strongly to the North and what's going on there that I'm not sure it's ever going to really matter. I mean, I suppose it must in some way, but it's, it's definitely not that high on my priority list. I definitely don't think it's a, a prerequisite that we we must have it in this book in order for it to make sense, like we were saying about the wall earlier. Uh, I assume it's not really going to matter until the dragons start heading north, which, again, I, I just can't imagine fitting into this book as well. So, Emily, you might be better placed to give an, an opinion on the how and if it would be revealed. Sure. I mean, one thing that I could see surviving in some form from, from the show is the idea that, you know, Sam and Bran are kind of discovering pieces of this information together. This would allow the reveal to happen for the readers before it necessarily happens for John himself, which I think is really cool. I think it's possible that we could see the reveal happening for us, the readers, in wins, but potentially having it revealed to John later, like in Dream. I think I, I like the idea that he already establishes uh, you know, uh, like I just mean any general relationship. Uh, you know, I like the idea that he meets Daenerys before he knows this, and then everything changes for him if he does indeed find out. So yeah, I think I that's kind of my my gut here. I think you know, Sam, Bran, John, none of them are together right now. So if they are the ones who who figure this out we have to see them kind of get back to the same place again. And, and I think we know that that brand probably is going to be heading south again. We have no clue how or when or what is going to happen with John to bring him back. So yeah, I think I think, you know, brand could see something, uh, you know, Sam could read something or hear something, but but maybe not have that get all the way back to John right away. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it, especially in terms of what you're saying about it coming across to the, the reader before John necessarily. I could definitely see the, the public uh, or maybe even the John reveal coming up in Dream, but it being laid out for us in Wind, as if it's not already laid out for us, but you know, in an even more direct way. I'm personally not convinced that Sam will be a part of it this time round. I don't think the book version of The Citadel is going to have those type of records. I think that's a bit convenient from the show there. Plus, how much time is he actually going to have at the Citadel for that kind of thing with Euron just around the corner of his Krakens? I'm more of the opinion that Bran is going to see it in his visions because I assume, again, Blood Raven is going to be pretty invested in this news and whether he wants that to be made public or kept secret or whatever he's up to. I mean, he is a Targaryen himself. So I think the storyline will actually revolve a bit more around him than, obviously, than we got on yeah. the show. So that, that'd be where my interest comes in more and more than just it being revealed to people sure. in general. I think if it comes to Sam, I think it's like, it's not going to happen by Gilly reading it out of a, a random book she opens. You know, I, I think possibly not even a book at all, I think, you know, but uh, if if we believe that, you know, they were married in a secret ceremony, you know, who did that? Are they around? You know, so there, there are some other possibilities there. But I do, you know, I think Bran is, in my mind, 100% a part of the reveal. Sam, I'm more iffy on, like you say. Yeah, I think Bran is 100%. Okay, so that was a, a 
pretty straightforward one there let's move on to question 29 it's another patron question which is good we like those got lots of those today we're gonna have to get a little bell ring the patron bell whenever it's one of their (laughs) questions this one comes from Derek Blackfire, which is a good patron name. And originally he sent a question about uh, whether Euron will gain a dragon. But then actually he emailed again, he messaged again. It morphed into an even better question. So we're going to take the enhanced version. And that is, what other prizes will Euron end up with by the end of wins? Uh, will it be more horns, books from Old Town that we've just been talking about? Or is it Krakens, the Sword of the Morning? Will it be Nightfall? Derek suggests all of these. So what do we think? I think that he may get him get his hands on some Valyrian steel. Uh, you know, maybe it's a sword. Mm-hmm. We've talked about potential swords we could find coming along. But he could also get some links from the maesters and try to do some sort of sorcery or forging with it. Who knows? But I think that that could be on his list. Yeah, I kind of, I want him to go around collecting the set almost. Like he's got this one-of-a-kind armor, it's Valerian steel armor. Maybe he finds a nice helm that can go with that. Or my personal headcanon is that he's going to go to King's Landing, get a hold of uh, Topo Mott and set him to work on the first Valerian steel eye patch. That'd be pretty cool. I think I'd get some looks, yeah. wouldn't it? In Storm of Swords, Axel Florent, much hated Axel Florent, he suggests that Stannis have his forces sack Claw Isle, the home of House Celtigar. And Salador San, he's around at this point, he's all in on the idea because the Celtigars apparently have this whole treasure trove of neat stuff, including, it says, a Valerian steel axe and a horn that can summon creatures from the deep. And I'm not sure there's anything that screams Euron louder than that pairing. <laughs> I've always thought that Claw Isle must re-enter the narrative at some point because it sounds like it's got really cool stuff and maybe it's going to be Euron going to collect. But yeah, I think he goes for the full kit. Valerian steel wrist watch, Valerian steel shoelaces, nose piercings, whatever you can get your hands on. <laughs> And, uh, you know, just how frustrating would that be for those up on the wall trying furiously to fight the others and then he's just being frivolous with his Valyrian steel. Well, I hope not. Um, I think also he's likely to take some maesters prisoner. Um, I think overall, obviously, he doesn't have a lot of respect for them. But, uh, you know, there are some at the Citadel who have studied the greater mysteries. and, And, you know, he's certainly taken with the mystical and the magical. Let's please hope that that does not mean Sam or Alaris and their company. We are hoping or thinking that that Marwyn is probably out of reach at this point, depending on how the seas fared for him. But there may be others, you know, um, who have forged their their Valyrian steel links. He'll probably treat them horribly, but I kind of want, I, I, I guess I could see him preferring to just speak to them and demand that they answer his questions rather than like gathering up a bunch of books and doing some reading. Yeah, yeah, I can say he definitely likes a chin wag. Uh, he could definitely fill some time just tormenting those maesters. But to keep the Valerian steel vibe going, we mentioned in that Forsaken Scraps and Scrolls episode some of the possibilities of what Euron could do to the Citadel, and unfortunately, that includes him just massacring thousands of maesters and their students. So wouldn't it just? I've just got this awful image of this horrible picture. Of he's got this this big cauldron thing where he's just melting down all of their chains, and obviously some. Of of them would have valerian steel links maybe he's going to make one big valerian steel chain or something like that he's going to turn into ghost rider <laughs> of course the question the problem of that would be how many maesters actually have one of those because according to maester lewin there's only one in a hundred who have achieved that so i guess it just begs the question how many maesters there actually are I, I, i'm sure there's enough you could make something sure. cool 
you know, Valerian steel, something There's got to be extra, like, sitting around, too, for new maesters who yeah. forge it. So it's... Uh, and, That's and true. How much they is must there, have some you know? supply. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. I'd not thought of that. Uh, the watch should be be asking them to send that up, shouldn't yeah. they? Um, I want to also talk about something that um, our patron, Catherine, had mentioned in recent conversations uh, adjacent to this topic about Euron. Uh, she mentioned Euron killing and then bringing back Aaron. And I think this is such a cool idea. I mean, I, I, I've said before in previous episodes that I do think that, you know, Aaron will die. But if we believe that he's what was seen in Danny's House of the Undying prophecy, you know, his eyes are awake and blue and creepy. And so, you know, resurrection's clearly a thing in this world. Uh, but I'm scared to see what the Ironborn or, or even worse, the Crow's Eye version of that would be. Mm. Catherine also mentioned an interest in Kyburn's experiments uh, and or a desire to control or potentially ally with the others. All of these ideas are pretty horrifying to me, which surely means that they are very appealing to Euron. I think that's pretty interesting, that idea. I mean, we do have fire whites we think we've got ice whites maybe euron makes water whites or something like that i think i might have brought that up somewhere before but i can't imagine where it would have come up it's a pretty out there idea but that's definitely a cool one from Catherine. yeah uh, another patron, Aegon the Sixth, actually flipped the script on this question and said that he wondered if Euron could actually lose access to certain things of the mystical that he's relied on. Particularly, he brought up the Shade of the Evening or his warlocks, you know, and and if that happened, could he potentially exhibit like withdrawal symptoms or or be weakened by by the loss of something like that? So you know, we're talking a lot about what he's going to collect and gain, but I, I thought that was just a really great thing that he brought up there. I think that's a great point made there because when Pyat Pri and his three other warlocks set out, they they take like casks of the stuff with them. Now, I'm sure that's you know, because they want to use it, but it might also be because they're aware if they don't have it, it's going to be a pretty rough voyage. And definitely, you know, those ones that Danny met at the House of the Undying, they sure looked like they needed it pretty bad. So that would definitely make sense. That'd be really interesting to see uh, what that does to you or if it weakens him at all. To circle back to Derek's question and his suggestions, or Emily, you've just hit on the books or the acquisition of knowledge at least i think in terms of eldritch creatures which derek also mentions well it sure looks like euron's gonna at least have one uh, i don't know if he can get a kraken like full time or if it's just you kind of borrow him for an hour to deal merry hell but i think it's coming either way and then there's also every possibility of him nicking that dragon from victorian the sword of the morning that derek suggested that's a very intriguing possibility to me because i mean he's not a million miles away if we're being fair mm -hmm. And we do have a cast of characters nearby in Ario Hotar's bunch, and one of them has a connection to Old Town in Obara, so they could, you know, there's a there's a road there to be travelled. You wouldn't think these two streams could merge, but we have spoken a million times about the mirror between the Ironborn and the Dornish storylines. Maybe this is where they start interacting. Uh, I don't have any clues about whether Euron knows about Dawn or if there even is anything special about Dawn, but you can just never tell with this guy, can you? Right. You know, another if we're gonna talk about Valyrian steel I'll, I'll just bring up one more idea which is the vigilance which is house high towers Valyrian steel longsword yeah so um throw that in the mix although it's whereabouts is unknown so it's it's kind of unlikely but it's uh you know in terms of proximity yeah, we, we, i think we covered that one didn't yeah we? in terms of proximity he's nearby but he'd have to find it and uh, good luck with that i'm sure there's plenty of stuff for him to collect in the citadel whatever the alchemist is after it could be anything we'll just right have now. to see if he's like the, the kind of like chaotic villain who 
you know, you know, does he have a plan? Is he ready to march on to the next destination right away? <laughs> or is he just gonna, you know, mess around because he loves torturing people? Um, you know, I, I think sounds like, you it. know, we'll, we'll, I, I'm guessing a little bit of both. That, uh, death of the dragons book that's supposed to be in the Citadel. Some people theorize if he gets his hand on that and if he's Again, maybe he just wants to kill the dragons just to be a dick or after he uses them or something like that. I mean, he's... There's plenty of stuff Yeah, in we've there. talked about him as someone who, like, you know, enjoys a contingency plan. You know, I don't think he put all his eggs in the Victorian basket and sending him east. So I think <laughs> he... It, Pretty whole-filled basket. Right. I think, uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, ideally he would love to have his own dragon. But if he can't have it, I think... He, he would want to burn it all down and make sure no one else did. So that that book is a great kind of last point here. Mm. All right, are we ready for the final question? I suppose. All we right. Are. So this one, it actually, um, it, it's a question that I kind of formulated, but it, I've got to like kind of thank the whole community. Um, you know, on the Radio Westeros Discord channel, there's kind of a discussion going around about this, and and from that birthed this question, which is, how many years are you expecting the remainder of the story to cover? Good old Radio Westeros patron Discord. That's where all the best stuff comes. Uh, this is a good, intriguing question. Uh, it's difficult for me because I'm always someone who thinks it's already been going for way longer than it has. Like, in my mind, I always think the story is, like, three or four years long, but it's, it's not. In my mind, it is. Uh, clearly, there are avenues for it to continue for quite a while yet because there's elements of the five-year gap that uh, George would have teased out and planned for. So he's got the material if he wants to take it for a long time. Obviously, some of that has already been bumped up, but I'm sure he's held stuff back as well. So he has that road to travel if he wishes to take it that way. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. I think we probably have a few years, at least one to two years left, uh, even without the five-year gap. You know, with so many big battles on the horizon, large number of troops to mobilize and move, many claimants to the throne, I just don't see how it could be wrapped up any shorter than one to two years. Yeah, I think the best way to look at it is Daenerys. She's the element that will tell us that there's still a fair bit of time left. I mean, she's still got... Well, firstly, she's got to get back to Marine and prepare to travel over, even after you've done all that. Then she has to travel over. We're assuming she's going to have stops along the way in Volantis or Bravos, maybe. Then when she gets there, there's going to be a campaign in King's Landing that I assume is not going to go quickly. She might then head straight away up north. She might do some other things first. And so I think we've got to say, I mean, all that, that's got to be at least a year minimum at least doesn't it yeah where i kind of get caught up is society's already pretty well i was going to say broken but society's already pretty fucked really winter's started it's coming south the famine is if not here then pretty much immediately around the corner it is there in some places so it's a question of how much of that are we going to see how bad is it going to get i mean you would assume not months and months of it or we'll have no people left but then again they do go through winters the years long anyway so i guess uh, that does happen and you wouldn't put it past george anyway would you no i have to wonder if john's deal with the iron bank a possible little finger downfall uh aegon holding the reach will you know help stave off famine a bit but you said winter is still likely to be an awful time for the common folk who obviously had things going super great before winter came around obviously <laughs> yeah everything was fine and <laughs> this is fine <laughs> um yeah i don't know i mean that deal with the iron bank we don't know what's going to kind of happen with that now that John appears to be dead. Uh, if Taicho 
can even get back anyway. His ships aren't there. Littlefinger, that's a good point. There's still lots of food up there. And then I, I think it's kind of a 50-50 on the reach. Does Aegon hold it or does he just end up messing it up a lot fighting for it? We don't know which way that's going to go. I think an important question that will relate to the timing that we've kind of already covered today is what are we going to get out of the others um, how far will they get? Will Are they turned back at the first hurdle? Do they spend months of their own time shuffling ever southward? I mean, it is called the Long Night, which you think would be a pretty big clue, but we don't know, do we? Yeah, you know, great point there. Wall leadership is not in a good place at the moment. You know, the no. men guarding the realm are as likely to tear each other as part as they are to unite against the army of the dead. If the wall is not a huge hindrance to the others, I think we can take uh, we can expect to take a good long while before things on that front kind of get back under control. Yeah, like I said earlier, I personally do hope we get to see like the proper long night. I, I hope we do get to see them come pretty far south. Uh, so again, if that is the case, that will take a while. So I mean, that could be even longer, but I struggle. I mean, we've just reasoned it out that this is, I think we're in agreement here. We're talking one, two years, maybe more. But it seems weird to say that and then say, okay, we've got two books left. because So that means that at least one of the books is going to be like a year and a half in length, which is way, way further than anything we've got uh since game of thrones i can't remember what game of thrones is but i know that's the longest one in terms of real world time so it's going to be uh in world time rather so that's going to be quite the difference it doesn't fit well with me but as we've just said that i mean it has to be doesn't yeah, it Yeah. although i mean that's if we are believing that we're 100 percent only getting seven books so well that's true that's a whole different <laughs> i don't want to someone send us a question about that because like, we can't get into it now we've been yeah, talking that'll enough be, that'll be in there. <laughs> Yeah. One more idea for us to finish on here is uh, something I always toss out there just because I think it's funny. Maybe there's a second five-year gap coming. Uh, I always think that's pretty funny. All right. So when do you think that would happen? Well, I'd like for it to be between winds and spring. I just think it'd be really funny if George has kept completely quiet about that, uh, had this big deal about it not happening at the end of Dance and him having to change everything, and he's just, like, determined, I don't care what you say, I'm getting my five-year gap in, or however long it is, I'm going to stick it at the end of this book instead. And then everyone's theories get completely thrown out of whack and we all have to start again. I just think that'd be a, a nice little... Plus... Plus, Not then he, George, you know, yeah. can wait at least five years between winds and spring to release it and just say he was, you know, foreshadowing. <laughs> Please, no. Yeah. Got it all planned Please out. Please don't do that. <laughs> um, well, we covered a lot today. This is easily our longest of uh, the... 100 questions so far sure is so let's be brief but please uh you know tweet email join us on patreon and send us your responses to these questions send us more questions we 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 really love what we've received so far and and we want to hear more from you guys yeah, let's give you a quick reminder, because it is a long episode, you've probably forgot since the beginning, of the the questions that we've asked today. I'll, I'll give you the first five, Emily can give you the second. So you might remember we started off with a big old discussion about any guesses for the setting and POV of the prologue chapter. That was the big one. Then we said, uh, do you think the wall will be down by whatever means by the end of the book? We moved on to Hodor dies and Stannis is going to burn Shireen, but how will it be different? I asked, will there be an actual attempt to crown Theon? And we talked about which POV characters were most concerned about surviving wins. 
Yeah, next we looked at, you know, themes of vengeance and and what are some likely moments of vengeance that we were both looking forward to. After that, we dove into, you know, is Loras gravely injured and what happened on Dragonstone? Then we covered, will the R plus L equal J reveal happen in wins? And if so, how? We talked about, you know, what other prizes Euron will end up with by the end of this book. And we wrapped it up with how many years we expect the remainder of the story to cover. That was questions 21 through 30. That's a good bunch there. I think you've got some really good ones you could send answers in for, you know, theories on Loris. Uh, if you can beat Valerian Steel Eye Patch for suggestions for Euron, then you deserve my medal. Uh, all the others as can well. I see some f- some fan art for for his uh, Valyrian steel art uh, outfit. Yes, yes someone, let's get a hold of that. <laughs> someone send that in. Any one of the questions, send in your answers, serious or otherwise, long or short, we don't mind. You can send it to either one of us. Again, like Emily said at the beginning, on Twitter to the email otherfacespodcast at gmail dot com or to the Patreon. And again, let's take the opportunity to thank our many many patrons and everything they're contributing and their generosity and everything else because it makes us feel nice and it makes recording these episodes even more fun we really appreciate the support um thank you thank you thank you so we'll be back soon enough uh hopefully going to get this one out quite quick for you we'll be back with episode four obviously which will probably be another 10 i imagine unless someone asks me about the prologue again in which case we might have to split (laughs) it up just one more episode about that alone (laughs) just one more i think i could get if you guys want to send some short easy to answer questions we we don't mind those either Yeah, we had we had maybe two of them today, but uh, we don't mind a long episode. That's fine as well. And before that, we'll have Victorian coming up, the end of Scraps and Scrolls, like we mentioned at the beginning. Maybe a little review of the people we've missed as well. Emily's patron-only interview episode, and there'll be more patron-only stuff coming. We're going to have a big old discussion about the tiers and the benefits because, I mean, there's so many more of you. We need to get going. We need to give you some stuff, so look for that in the future as well thank thank you all again yeah thank you emily for joining us again i hope the sun continues over where you are and that goes for everybody out there thanks for listening we will see you next time